Welcome to ComTrack, where you'll never have to watch a movie alone again. I'm your host, Tim Lifeite. And I'm Hannah Simnewski. And we are here for the big one this Blade year. Runner. Oh, yeah, dude. Yes. We've done Akira, or at least I did. Uh, we've done to- uh, The Running Man, and now the big one of 2019, November 2019, Blade Runner. The big oh, this is such. <laughs> We've been this, hyping this up. Since we have goes. been. It's 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 gonna be a, a really awesome show. Okay, so I want to because I know you're a huge fan of the Phil K. Dick novel, uh, "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" Yeah, I've read that. I reread that one um, last week just to prepare, just to brush up on all of this. You haven't read the book at all. I have not actually. It's it's on my shelf. I've been meaning to read it, but I actually. Uh, put it off for this episode just so you could be the expert oh, okay because you're gonna you're gonna see me mess up and fuck up cer- certain names because i haven't actually seen the movie in about a year and a half oh, so really? you're gonna hear me say things like the rosin company and like jr isador and you're gonna be like who the fuck is that Hannah? <laughs> um, see but- I, I i rewatched uh uh 2049 Mm-hmm. And I also watched the uh, the brilliant documentary, Dangerous Days, The Making of Blade Runner, which is a three-and-a-half-hour-long documentary. It's awesome. Oh, yeah. um, another thing that I really want to do, and this is for any listeners out there who are looking for a Christmas list uh, gift for me, uh, Future Noir, The Making of Blade Runner. It's a book. Uh, I forget the, uh, the author off the top of my head, but... Uh, yeah. Oh, and uh, honestly, for those of you casual listeners who just want to get to the movie, uh, there's a sync button below where you can just skip past all the bullshit because we're going to be talking about this a l- quite a bit we're before we be start. We're going to be introducing yeah. that. <clears throat> but anyway, uh, I want to know where your first exposure to Blade Runner was. My first exposure to Blade Runner was just, oh gosh. Cause I, I think we watched it for the first time together, but I was acutely aware of the movie for a while. Um, I remember mine very, very vividly. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, it was another one uh, one of the screenings at my college in BGSU. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it was for uh, Tuesdays at the Gish, and uh, I actually made sure to get a front row seat because I've been meaning to see Blade Runner for the longest time. I think the most that I really got exposed to it was the soundtrack through an old friend of mine who was a huge uh, geek about soundtracks. And oh, he, yeah. He played me the love theme, and I'm like, I'm in. <laughs> but uh, I we sat down and watched it, and it was the director's cut, because tonight we're watching the final cut. The definitive version. The def- yes. The, the, the real version, you sons of bitches. <laughs> <laughs> but, Did you uh, watch the same whatever video that I watched last night? Cause I went oh, online. is it Nerdwriter? Yes. Yes. You said sons of bitches. <laughs> you That's son right. of a bitch. That's the first one that I had to watch. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, the final cut is mm. – I've seen – I've actually seen uh, – uh, three different versions. I've seen the work print, which is awful. Um, I've seen bits and pieces of the theatrical cut, which w- also was not very great, mostly because of it's the voiceover from Harrison Ford. Oh, voiceovers make everything worse. Oh, you have no idea. It's not just the voiceover. Yeah. It's his delivery because uh, he was actually just so just, not a fan. I can just imagine Harrison Ford getting a call back to record some ADR, and he's sitting there with a scotch like when the can I it sounds like he's I want to like build that. a plane. I don't want to be here. Dude, like if you've ever heard like his delivery on his uh on his voiceover work to narrate the movie, it's so he sounds so disinterested. I am I just want to be there just cuz I'm a big fan of Harrison Ford not liking his own films. <laughs> <laughs> well, he really hated the dialogue. There's actually points where I think it was in the documentary uh, Dangerous Days 
uh, that he literally just stops in the middle of the reading, like, is this really, is this really necessary? <laughs> like, literally, he's just turning to him, like, fuck this. One of my favorite this. interviews with him is, um, they were asking him if he was going to, you know, go see this, like, the new Star Wars movie of, like, this generation. Yeah. And he's like, they, I think they said, oh, are you interested in seeing yourself in this film? And he's like, no, really. Yeah. And they had to, like, stop. Like, George Lucas gave him a look, like, <laughs> <laughs> he's such a grouch he's such a charming grouch i love oh, him oh yeah if you talk to him about his actual hobbies because yeah. i think that that's what he was is he was just a carpenter on set and george lucas was like you want to be in my one film like american graffiti and he's like i guess and then he i does... mean i'm here it's a one-off thing and then when he was brought on for star wars he was literally george lucas said i'm not gonna cast you as on solo because i you we've already worked with you in american graffiti i want completely unknowns but during the uh, the the um, the initial test readings, like he was giving feeding sides as Han Solo to some of the other actors auditioning for Luke and Leia, and the whole time George Lucas is like, oh, he is kind of good, isn't he? Oh yeah. So he he's fought... acting, and I love him. And then when he when Star Wars was a hit, he was just like, yes, money. Now oh, yeah. I can do stuff. Oh man. And they um, keep bringing him back. Yeah. It's like. I'm 60. I have an illegitimate son. I don't want to be here. <laughs> That's literally all That's of his all movies. That's all he does. Like, is... come back for his illegitimate children. Yeah. If you don't have a dad, it's probably Harrison Ford. Yeah, Darth Vader, you ain't got nothing on him. <laughs> but... Oh, no. He's just popping him out left and right. <laughs> continuing the Harrison Ford bloodline. <laughs> oh, my God. This is... <laughs> It really ratty, is. I mean, we've ratty got ratty emo we, kids we, who don't know their Harrison Ford. Because we've got we've got uh, uh, the, uh, the 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 rep the uh, the well, I forget her name at the end of twenty forty nine. Oh, the the doctor. Yes, I, I we've got. I don't remember her name. I feel like um, it's Then we've got something. Mutt Williams, who's Indiana Jones's kid. Yeah. Kylo Ren, Han Solo's kid. Like all of his most iconic roles are now just having. Can we bring back every Aaron? every eighties like bring back Harrison Ford's just like I'm your dad. <laughs> Woogie, 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 woogie. <laughs> he would do and something you stupid. Old vine, you're my dad. Any character in a reboot, and then Harrison Ford. Wow. But anyway, mm. going back, uh, my first memory of ba Blade yes. Runner. Yes, we there. We, there is some logic to this. I sh I assure you, people. Yes. Um, I saw it uh, at the Tuesdays at the Gish, and so it was. It wasn't the greatest presentation. Like it was, uh, it, it was on one of those four by three uh, screens, and the uh, so it looked like you were watching a picture within a picture, and the picture wasn't that big. And but it was still in widescreen. Um, the picture again, the resolution wasn't all that great. It was the director's cut, and the whole time I remember sitting there, I'm like, "What the hell is going on?" And it was up until a moment, and I'll be sure to mention it in the actual movie during the commentary. Um, where I realized, okay, this is brilliant. It, it took me a very long time to realize just what a masterpiece this really was. And it wasn't until I went back to watch the final cut, because that was the next version I watched, uh, where it just everything just finally clicked. I think that's a lot of people's experience because it's a very slow movie. And yes. It's very visually interesting that you're just kind of laying back, taking in the sight. Yep. And you don't really think about the themes until you get a good percentage into the movie and Oh yeah. They creep up on you. Yeah, yeah. Versus cuz I mean a lot of like really great masterpiece, some of my favorite movies. I really uh, I 
my feeling at the end of the movie was what the hell did I just watch? Um, and it wasn't upon until like watching say another version of it or just like watching it again later, much, much later on mm -hmm. that I realized, wow, this really is ahead of its time and really a great piece of art, mm -hmm. you know? Um, uh, and, uh, and then after watching the final cut, um, which I still think is my favorite, I did watch the work print just because I'm thinking, Ooh, work print, this is going to be weird and kind of dumb and bad. And it was, <laughs> <laughs> I have never seen any of the different versions. I think that's my biggest gap in my knowledge of Blade Runner is everyone's like, this is a good version. So I just watched the good version. Uh, I want to just check it out just to see what else there is. Mm -hmm. And yeah, uh, I also seen snippets of the uh, the theatrical cut, which is slightly better than the work print that I'm told. But that voiceover is just so because and you know it's weird. I know there's actually major filmmakers who both hate and love the voiceover. Like for instance, Guillermo del Toro, he loves the voiceover. Guillermo. He he loves the voiceover. Like what we do in the shadows, it's Guillermo. Guillermo, but he loves. <laughs> the the voiceover mm -hmm. throughout the movie and he, he, that's like always been a big part of him mm -hmm. unlike there's another one like frank darberant uh he mentions like the whole during the tears of the rain sequence he's oh, like I, I am in ecstasy with this moment <laughs> and then as soon as he dies you hear harrison ford start to speak over narration and he's like no <laughs> i was like in the middle of coming <laughs> and it was like being spit in the face Voiceovers just always don't play well with drama for me. They always make no. me think of like the last three minutes of an episode of Scrubs. Just like, and then I realized that maybe we're not all that different. <laughs> Doctors, people, we're all just trying to fix what's wrong or something. Like, it's too neat. Yeah, narration right? Narration is lazy. If I wanted narration, I'd read a fucking book. Well, the whole, <laughs> you know the whole reason why they were doing that? Cause... Probably a throwback to film noir something it, like that partially because uh, uh, especially in the uh, the the work print cut mm -hmm. uh, the dialogue that they used is very very um, Mickey Spillane yeah. you know um, but uh, the whole reason why is because the producers you know again they were having that feeling like what the hell are we looking at it's gorgeous but what the fuck is this movie it's so, not a very plot driven movie it's, no it's not it's so thematic so so they wanted to, the producers insisted to give it um, uh, voiceover just to explain to the audience just what the hell is going on. Oh yeah. So it it does take you out of the moment, but thank God Ridley Scott decided to not use any for the final cut because oh. this is the actually the only version of his that he has full creative control. Because um, while there, the reason why there are so many cuts is because while they were making the movie. They were promising uh, uh, licensing and rights to all these different people. And when it was finally finished filming, all these other people were like saying, no, do this, do this, do this. And it got all jumbled because if I believe I'm correct and I could be wrong, there are uh, seven known versions. There's the original work print that was uh, showcased to the producers as a rough cut. Uh, then there was the rare San Diego uh, premiere cut, which premiered during one of the very early Comic-Cons in San Diego. Uh, then there was the U.S. theatrical cut, the international theatrical cut, which was a little bit more, you know, lenient toward the sex, nudity, and violence. Mm -hmm. uh, then they came out with the director's cut in the 90s. 
um, which again was kind of still mostly like the studios just saying, hey, we got all this really cool stuff to like, they actually released the work print in, uh, I believe, uh, the early 90s. And uh, fans of the film got so excited, they're like, let's do a director's cut. And Ridley Scott wasn't uh, very interested in doing it (laughs) because I think he was knee deep in another film. I forget which one. And uh, when they were still like the director's cut, I'm like, there's still stuff where you're like, why did they do that? Like uh, the, the biggest one is when the dove flies away. Oh, yeah. It's a clear blue sky that's clearly just a factory on some weird location <laughs> and not like in the alleyway film that they replaced, thankfully, in the the final cut. Um, but uh, yeah, that the final cut is the one that Ridley Scott said, this is truly the final one. Not going to do it anymore. This is it. This is my vision. And it looks gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Um, and before we get into it, there's just one last thing that I think we should talk about. Because uh, it's going to come up later on. Blade Runner 2049. Oh, I love it. I love it. It's great. Some, I am not going to draw my line on, on whether it's a, a better sequel than the original. But uh, it's really, really good. And if you haven't seen it, uh, you should watch it before we review it 30 years from now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that movie is just... They were playing Blade Runner 2049 in an art exhibit that I was at this week. Yeah. Full on. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's... It's really good. Well, honestly, I remember... And it raises a... a, You're in a different headspace when you know they're a replicant the entire time. Yeah. It asks you a lot of different questions. Yeah. Um, See, I wanted to hate it so much. Like, I remember when it was announced, I'm like, this is stupid. Don't do it. I saw the trailer. Was not impressed. I said, I can't wait for this movie to come out and for me to laugh at it. Because remember, this was the height of the you know the reboot resequel like oh yeah all the stuff from 30 years ago that's making sequels and it's just like i think crystal skull had just come out uh no no no, no, no. crystal what, what skull was... uh it was force awakens that... force awakens had just come out and yeah force awakens was fun yeah it yeah. was fun but it was right in the midst of like you know the reboots and remakes yeah. and sequels from 30 years apart and it's just like you're picking the one that i just don't want you to touch don't do it leave it alone and then the reviews came out day one of Rotten Tomatoes, 93%. I'm like, what? <laughs> 93 on the first day? So I went to go see it on the biggest theater that I could see it on, giant sound system. And oh, holy fuck, like 10 minutes in, I was blown away. Blade Runner 2049 is the only film that I've watched just twice in a row in one seating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I can believe I it. I just, I was on a plane and I watched, I was, I saw that they had it. I finished it. And I was like, great. Yeah. And then I looked at all their other stuff and I was like, again. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. honestly, like the biggest issue that I had was that it would fu- ultimately pull the rug under uh, the originals. Great. One of its great questions is Deckard a replicant or human? And I'm like, no, let this be. A th- don't. Don't answer a question they, that's so interesting. They answered it and didn't ruin it. Oh, yeah, no. that wasn't the focus that's at what, all. That's what blew my mind. Is that it's like, okay, he's a replicant. Who cares? We have other questions to ask. Yes. Here. We're not here to, yes. to clean up the original and make it undiscussable. And... and because it was so slow and deliberate and felt such like a great extension to that universe, I was so happy. And they so blurred happy. the lines a little bit. I love joy as a concept like as a yes character, because 
you've drawn the lines okay it's like okay here's a human here's a synthetic human are they both human yes okay now what about this ai who actually is programmed to think a different way is she human oh fuck no and then what? when they oh and what if you're a synthetic human but you have real human memories are you more human than a synthetic human who doesn't have real human memories what does it mean oh and to make it even more dense that sex scene where it sinks uh, where joy sinks up to a replicant prop prostitute oh yeah it's as if to say like it's literally melding the two ideas into one that's so cool oh, yeah. <laughs> like not just as a visual effect but as a thematic one mm. holy shit like i honestly you know i really should have seen the fact that that movie was going to be really great just based on it was Denis Villeneuve mm -hmm. who uh, directed it who cuz i hadn't seen any of his previous also, movies also like the coincidence of like physical love and emotional love but both in a way that you purchase and are inauthentic just trying to push those items together to create a real human experience but you know no matter what you do you're not going to have a real human experience and well k isn't human anyway yes, so that's... but he is but he's not but he... what is human <laughs> see this is why it's so cool <laughs> this is why it's so cool it's, that's what happens when i get people it's like hey do you want to come over to my house and watch some ryan gosling movies it's like i've got blade runner and lars and the real girl Oh, throw in, please throw in Drive in there, dude. Oh, Drive is good, too. Yes. I have not seen The Notebook. I haven't I, either. <laughs> I love Ryan Gosling so much. Fuck yeah, dude. <laughs> but, so, yeah, Blade Runner 2049 mm. is one that we definitely, because I, I know that's going to come up every once in a while, and I just wanted to get that well, off my yeah, chest. Yeah, we will be bringing up Blade Runner 2049. A Inevitably, lot. If we're going to be sitting in front of this movie for two hours, yes. we're not going to not talk about K. Yes. So anyway, uh, now that we've talked to death about this movie and <laughs> we're going to actually watch it. So folks back home again, we are watching the final cut. None, not the directors, not the work for it, not just the final cut. Oh, and by the way, there's even a fan edit out there that's a little bit longer than this called the Nexus 6 fan edit. Ooh, We can talk about that during the movie. I haven't actually seen it yet, so I don't know anything about it. I just know it exists. Okay. Which is cool. All right. But anyway, so you guys got it home. You got it on streaming. You got it on Blu-ray. You got it on VHS. Whatever. We, uh, I just really hope you're ready to roll because we are going to start the movie in three, two, one, click. And there's the opening logo. Alan, uh, the uh, the lad, I believe it's the uh, the lad, uh, the lad junior company, which um, is uh, uh, Alan Ladd's uh, subsidiary. Um, cause Alan Ladd Jr. was the guy who, uh, invested in George Lucas to make Star Wars. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's like, he, look, George Lucas, like, pitched him Star Wars, and he's like, look, I have no idea what the fuck you're saying, but I think you're talented, and I'm gonna invest in you. I'm not gonna invest in your movie, I'm investing in you, I believe in you. Aw. Yeah. Ugh. Already. Like, the music of Vangelis. Like. Oh, it's not playing. Hold on. There's there. the title. Yes. Oh, Rutger Hauer. So the music in this was made with... Th the synthesizer that they used is made famous by this movie. Yes. And it was one of the very first synthesized machines that yes. was pressure sensitive. The yes. way that a piano would be. And so one of the facts I really... Little things I love about it is even the music 
was like improvised human emotion reacting to the screen but displayed through a very heavily like computerized yeah they... so even that kind of represents the life of maybe an android or a human living in an android civilization like that yep uh what i really love is uh um also just because vangelis was the, one of the guys who used uh his very first takes on some of these oh yeah know? i think he just played the movie and almost like just improvised it right on the spot yeah and tried to use as much of that as he could and the effect is amazing you know like uh, this the prologue this opening title sequence uh this is like one of my favorite night driving soundtracks especially oh, yeah. when it's uh raining oh we got our opening crawl mm. the tyrell corporation <laughs> basically like if uh uh, Jeff Bezos was more interested in androids than exports. <laughs> Prime droids. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, man. Mm -hmm. uh, see, th and this is like, you know, I feel like uh, Ridley Scott was really hesitant about uh, using the, the kind of crawl that they have here. Because, you know, Star Wars was literally just out. Um, plus, he just got off of another science fiction movie, Alien. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, as a matter of fact, he he turned the movie down. I do love this. Like, they called their executions retirements. Yeah, that's great. Uh, sometimes I really hate this kind of tell don't show type thing. Yeah, but I also uh, here it is. This November is November twenty nineteen. Hey, I also often in sci fi and fantasy find <sighs> that the world wow. building for plot yeah can be very boring. Yeah. A lot of times I'll read a fantasy novel, get 30 pages in, and I'm like, I get it. You're generic medieval England. There's some magic. Who gives a shit? But Dude. the king killed the dragon right. I don't care. Dude. So getting right into the themes and the characters yeah. and the visuals without having to put in all these extra scenes to explain what an android is, yep. I think was the best move yeah. for a film like this. God, look at those. These are models. Wait, really? These are all well. It it's uh, a model about sixteen foot feet tall, long, and it's on four different tables in forced perspective, so they actually look more distant than they actually are. Oh. And all these ships had to be, you know, composited and processed, mm -hmm. but they had thousands of thousands of miles of fiber optics in order to get those so the distant lights. Is one complete physical object? Yeah. Or four on different tables, but yeah. still. But it's all in-camera stuff. Isn't that nuts? And the oh Tyrell gosh. set? Okay, just because of the how it was super logistically weird to make, because the when you see the long shots, mm -hmm. it was actually built on the ceiling um, because of uh, the, uh, the fiber optics that got... Because there would be too many on the floor, so they actually had to hang it from the ceiling. In order to get it right. Wait, was it upside down? Though? Yes, and they what turned the, the cam and they turned the camera just upside down on a motion <laughs> control camera. Okay, what were the flames real? Uh, those are composited. Those are composited. All right. Um, however, the Tyrell building got so hot with the lights that it actually caught fire and it <laughs> no longer exists. Oh no! What a it shame. It was yeah, it was destroyed. Um, oh, the Voight contest. Oh yeah. 
my first introduction to eye symbolism yes symbolism. The, well we had quite a there's well, a lot have. of eyes oh yeah um especially the uh the all-seeing eye that you see at the beginning with the city just yep. five seconds ago yeah no no one i love how that's really not specifically meant to be any human any character's eye oh yeah um it's simply more supposed to be ours you know and i really love uh the recurring theme of eyes in this movie it even carries on into the sequel if you talk yep about it totally does Decker that's the only recognizing that rachel was her eyes are green eyes, or wallace like not having eyes at all <laughs> exactly man or uh um e even the very opening shot is mm -hmm. an eye opening an awakening which is so cool oh that's so thematic yes waking up to your human i love it ah so good mm -hmm. now i remember um oh god I, I forget this actor's name um unfortunately he uh he passed away um not too long ago the one playing kowalski yes um although i do know that uh he initially didn't get the audition mm -hmm. but it was um ridley scott's secretary who convinced him otherwise he's like that man's super fucking scary, and I don't think you should hire him. Ridley Scott immediately hired him because he was so scary looking. You know who he actually reminds me of? Who? Uh, he makes me think of uh, Michael Keaton. Mm -hmm. He's got the same kind of, uh, kind of face. He's got. He's kind of has the same bat brow. Yeah. <laughs> now, if you read the book, all the Voight camp like questions are lifted from the book. Oh, are it's they? It's kind of funny because a huge context of uh, the novel was left out in. The movie, like the two major differences are number one, you you have um, normal humans. Yeah. Then you have the replicants, but then you also have another class group called the specials. Basically, the reason that everyone's moving off off world, they basically say, get off Earth, go to a colony, we'll give you an android slave. Um, it's because of nuclear fallout from World War Three. Oh shit! But it's basically made a lot of people um, mentally challenged. And so you have to pass two tests to be able to move off world and get rights. One, an empathy test to prove you're not an android. Yep. And another one, an IQ test. So the uh, the man who actually takes in like Chris and Roy is also seen as less than human because he can't think very well. And they're seen as less than human because they can't empathize very well. Fascinating. Uh, so that's left out. And then also... Um, animals all died out yes that is yeah. like a recurring thing so if you listen to the question of the voight camps test it's often about helping animals or somebody offers you like hence the turtle thing yes yeah so Did, an first android... appearance of De deckard yes that's the one thing that uh, unfortunately they didn't get right about uh, uh 2019 print advertising is pretty much dead at this point oh, yeah. <laughs> but this was a big thing this off world is move off and everybody yeah. wants to leave earth a lot of there's like a lot of talk about uh yeah like right here the, you get a, a custom tailored uh genetic uh replicant for your needs mm -hmm. which is really really a really great idea oh yeah um i do look at these sets dude oh i know like ah uh, the the amount of detail is nuts like i think uh even harrison ford remarked this is probably one of the most detailed sets he's ever been on because there's shit in there that he doesn't you've never see. This is one of my favorite shots. In the but there's movie. life to the city. Well, because I love the shot because it's completely static. You have smoke in the foreground and rain in the background. 
Harrison's in uh, the centerpiece, and then you got these guys looming over him. So much is going on in such a still image. Oh, yeah. And it's just a masterpiece of movement. Mm-hmm. It feels lived in. Yes. It feels, like, awkward and... I also really love uh, um, Edward James Olmos, uh, who plays the, the te- detective here. Mm-hmm. He actually came up with this whole de- idea of city speak, which is a combination of, uh, I believe, uh, uh, Korean, uh, Mandarin, and all these other crazy languages, like, sewn together. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of this, like, crazy hodgepodge of what he calls city speak. Oh, yeah. And I really wish they went more with it. I really wish that they did go more with, um, oh, like, the spinner. ethnicity of the city and, like... Yes. There's a word called, like, heterotopia. Like, the idea that society yes. will become super globalized and cultures will mix or maybe all be given over to technology. I love this shot, too. Because oh. it's very... Have you seen Metropolis? Yes, of course. Yes. Everything is Metropolis. Everything is Metropolis. Oh, my God. Kaiba Corp Tower. Metropolis. These are models, <laughs> dude. Mm. Also, if there's but, um, if there's any fictional car in that I could ever choose to drive, I would choose the Spinner. Bitch, oh, I want me a flying car. <laughs> oh, the police headquarters. That's just straight out of Metropolis. That is the building from Metropolis. Yep. It just Pr- is. Pretty much. Uh, I believe if... I, I, I forget homage. where exactly... Um, but I believe there's uh, pieces of the Millennium Falcon on that thing as well. Oh, no, for real? Yeah, no kidding. Oh, gosh. Like, uh, cause, well, Harrison I mean, can't get away from it. Well, I mean, it's really just because they had spare sets lying around. Because this was shot in, uh, uh, even though this was shot in America, uh, Ridley Scott was coming in from England. Oh, yeah. And, uh, of course, this is the, uh, um, the ba- what was it? Uh, not the Baxter Building. You know, was it when he was shooting like Alien or Aliens in England? The Bradbury Building. Okay. That's it. Yeah, named after Ray Bradbury. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Oh, pardon. Oh, that's another really th- great thing think... that I love about the this universe is how they call the replicants skin jobs or oh yeah or better yet, uh, Skinner. Like, especially when they use it in uh, 2049. 29, they just put so, it on his... It, like, skin, fuck off, Skinner. But I just love it because, you know, Skinner is so reminiscent of the N-word. Oh, yeah. That's just so wonderful. I, it's, it's awful and just so well-written. When you well hear written. a fictional slur about a fantasy or a science fiction character, you do kind of want it to have that same impact. Yeah. Some like if you're like oh those knob jobs it's like yeah. sometimes you're like oh come on and it's like back off pointy ears like oh whatever it, exactly you want it to hurt um <clears throat> I was gonna say something else about rays too we're gonna have there's gonna be so, there's so much conversation it's interesting to this. how Asian the city is and how non-Asian every speaking character in yeah. the whole damn movie is. And I don't know if it is... Oh, I love this. The first bit of uh, origami. Except for that guy. He might be a little Asian-coded. He's the only non-white person who gets to speak in this whole fucking movie. <laughs> even though the city is so aggressively Chinese. And I'm not sure if that's Hollywood being racist and only hiring white people like they usually do. Or if it is kind of a... Hey, we want to show you that the entire, like, the cops are all 
white and the you know big mm. ceos and stuff are all and there's a difference between the upper and lower hierarchies of the cyberpunk world mm. or are asians only good enough to be extras for you <laughs> it's, it's a debate whether it's intentionally that symbolic might be, or that what. might be the american part of it because mm. again this was shot in america um and i know because Rid ridley scott actually hated working uh with the american team because uh um he was actually used to operating the camera himself oh yeah like he's the guy kind of a director who will literally take the camera look through the lens and shoot it accordingly he did not have um, much better a job with the uh english team though uh, apparently the like assistant director or somebody hated him and yeah told everybody on set he was stuck up mm -hmm. so they kept taking pee breaks like every five minutes yep yeah. Yeah. He just did a slowdown. He on just him and he, he honestly he just wants to fucking do his job. Oh which yeah. Is, which is probably one of the most admirable things about Ridley Scott. Although, did you ever hear about the T-shirt war? No, I was going to tell you. I heard um, on Fact Fiends podcast um, there was a time when uh, he had just set up, I think, like the the alien egg scene where they find all of them, and he had filled the room with fog, which took like twenty minutes, and then the tea trolley came in. And everybody got their cup of tea, went outside to drink it, leaving the doors wide open, getting rid of all the fog. He had to completely set up the entire scene again. By the way, there was something else that I just remembered when they were going through the introductions. Um, uh, 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 Roy Batty's incept date is, uh, oh wait, this. Notice her uh, birth date, February 14th. February 14th, they 2016. They sexualize the female characters more in the movie than they do in the book. Oh, really? Chris is not a pleasure droid in the book. And the other woman who works in... Zora. Like, Zora. Uh, her name is Lena Luft, and she's an opera singer ah, in not, the book. Not, not a stripper. Um, so... You know, in a weird way, I think that actually reinforces the idea. Because it kind of goes to what Ghost in the Shell was doing with the major. Like... Mm -hmm putting her like constantly having the major nude mm -hmm. in non-sexual ways and with um you know making these sexualized you're like are they even things Chris, are they things in the book walks around naked all the time yes and it's almost coded like she doesn't care what people think because she has trouble empathizing or connecting to humans so when this very awkward guy is trying to help her out and she just answers the door with her shirt off, it's not because she's trying to seduce him or anything. It's just she sees him as such a nobody that it's like you're catwalking in on you on the toilet. Hmm. So it's almost it's almost more empowering to her. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, 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 well, it also just kind of creates the idea of like we're we're objectifying them because technically they are objects. And does and that raises the whole ethical question of whether or not are they actually being treated as human? Oh yeah, which is interesting. I think that's a really there's weird... a whole argument on whether or not androids can consent. Which yes, is very interesting. Yes, it is. <laughs> oh my god, these models are so good. Look at all this shit, dude. All of that was in camera. Well, I mean, granted, they had to composite models and whatnot, and I've actually seen it in the work print. It's the compositing is not as good. Um, oh, I love this mm -hmm. with the owl. There's Rachel. 
And the little glistening sounds. Like, yes. They're beautiful. Like, That's, you don't know if they're diegetic or... Or non-diegetic. That's the other thing that I love about this movie is um, how the... I love it when music is mixed with the, uh, the actual sound effects where mm-hmm. you can't tell which is which. Hans Zimmer actually did something very similar in The Dark Knight where you hear the dark, you know, the, the Kate Banff in, yeah. And you're not sure, was that a sound effect or was that part of the score? I don't know. Black Panther was also very good at this. Like, are those like ceremonial drums part of the scene or are they just part of the musical score? I don't know. And I like that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) When um, things are at least timed or when you see things that come from maybe diegetic sounds swell up and slowly transform into music. Yes. That's when it gets like interesting. Like, you could almost imagine that tinkling sound as, oh, if there's some metal thing, that's what's reflecting the light on the wall. Is Are there wind chimes in the room? What is that? And then you hear, like, the synthesizer come in and you know that it's the musical score. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... That's actually the probably the reason why I'm totally fine with uh, the fact that Hans Zimmler got to do uh, the score for 2049 because originally it wasn't supposed to be him. It was supposed to be uh, Johan Johansson, who heard, yeah. unfortunately passed away right after he worked on Mandy, which is really sad because I would have loved to see because I heard that the score for Mandy is amazing. Oh, yeah. And I would have loved to see what he would have done with this kind of universe to play around in. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, uh, Hans Zimmer was kind of the right choice because I've seen how he edits and how he composes his music in his little studio very much in the way Evangelist did back in the day. So Hans Zimmer did a great job on 2049. Oh, yeah. Like uh, his like half the tracks in his score, love listening to that while I'm driving at night. <laughs> I was actually listening to that well, on, earlier. It's almost more of my uh, ambient sleep score than it is my night drive score. I can see that too. Mm-hmm. But, uh, oh, man, dude, like, I forget exactly, like, they they spent, like, two and a half weeks just making the Void Comp machine. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like, I think think it cost, like, $20,000 or something like that just to make. But, dude, it's just the detail and the unnecessary amounts of detail is just... So the amazing. Of having it open up on screen and you getting to see that. Yep. And the other thing that I really love, and again, this carries over to 2049, is the uh, the dancing water lights on the wall. Oh, yeah. I actually remember the American crew was constantly being like, why the hell are we doing this? And Ridley Scott was like, because it's cool. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> they were just like, all right. But uh, oh. I love the test in 2049, too. Yes. Like, how they actually say it in a really stressing tone in order to get used, like... And it's constant test. It's not finding out if you're an android. It's yeah. that they've accepted that androids will eventually gain sentience and maybe empathy and then have to be shut down. Yeah. It's just... It's way more repressive. It, they're, they're literally just keeping them under control. I love the, the lighting effect on the eyes. Oh, yeah. Because that's... And his that's... eyes in complete darkness on the other side. Yes. But... Like, that's always been, like, the big key hint that they're supposed to be a replicant. Yeah. Um, you see that with the owl. You see that with uh, Roy later on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, I think even Pris at one point as mm-hmm. well. Uh, but, uh, oh, what was it? 
but oh yeah that's the other thing did you like speaking of the owl did you know that pretty much all the characters have their own like uh animal avatars oh like the unicorn the owl stuff like that because tyrell is the owl because of his gigantic glasses Mm -hmm. um uh pris is a, a raccoon because of her makeup Okay. Um, and of course, let's face it, she was living she was in the in trash. The trash. <laughs> oh, um, uh, I believe. Uh, uh, oh God, I'm trying to remember. I can't all disconnect the... her with spiders after the book. <laughs> that is a horrible scene. Um, but um, I know. Uh, sh- sh- I don't is remember. Is it more like a dove or something? Uh, no, there was. Um... Yeah, there's a dove somewhere in here. Well, yeah, but that was with Roy. Roy is more uh, more so associated with the wolf because mm. he's the leader, and he also makes those howling noises at the end of the movie. Oh, that's true. Um, and uh, and for Deckard, it's usually the unicorn. Yeah, because he's just such a mystery and kind of a one of a kind sort of thing. Um, oh, and Zora, obviously the, the snake. snake. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, but I actually remember. The, okay, actually, do you recognize this actor? No, but I can't see half of his face. That's very glasses, true. So you can't blame me. He's Lloyd from The Shining. <gasps> oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I believe he was uh, just fresh off The Shining, and uh, and you know what's another really interesting connection to The Shining to this movie? What? Oh, sorry though. These shots, I love so the gore- gorgeous. It reminds me of Detroit. Um, uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, for Detroit, you're probably thinking of RoboCop because that was actually oh, yeah, in, in Detroit. Detroit. Um, no, but they do. If you if you drive out there, they have um, areas that go on just for miles, like five miles straight of just <sighs> those twisted metal production beams that aren't in use anymore. Look at that shit, dude. You know, actually, that reminds me. All the advertisements made me remember. Did you ever hear of the Blade Runner curse? No. All of the advertisements that were uh, used in here apparently had giant setbacks um, or complete like liquidations after they were shown in this movie. Like Pan Am is shown, destroyed. That we know that's gone. <laughs> Atari, basically just a thing that remains in lo- uh, in name right now. It's like a, owned by uh, uh, Nintendo or something like that. Yeah. I forget. A- Every once in a while, they release, like, a, um, I think it's owned by PlayStation. Yeah. Um, Every once in a while, they release, like, Atari collections whenever there's a new console. Mm -hmm. I think that's where all their money comes from. It's one disc that's, like, all 20,000 Atari games ever. Yeah. (laughs) So, but, uh, like, even Coca-Cola had it set back in, like, the mid-80s with, uh, um, so all of the products that were shown in here, apparently had either huge setbacks or um really or just like suffered really bad you can go backwards on product placement i think if you put it in a dystopia yeah i think if you think of like super size me and mcdonald's and how far back mcdonald's has fallen like how much their competitors have caught up to them since then stick man oh cute actually you know what was really crazy when people think something is evil yeah they're gonna they're not going to stop eating fast food because no. people are terrible, but they're going to go to Wendy's. Yeah. Because ba- so... those bacon burgers are just so I delish. I know so many people who will shop at big box stores all the time. Go to Costco, go to Target, 
But if you say you're going to Walmart, they'll be like, oh my gosh, no, but they're so unethical. Mm-hmm. You just need one documentary made. So if you, I, I think if you put Coca-Cola on a big screen in a terrible dystopia, I mean, people are terrible. They're still going to drink Pepsi. But, yep. Um, yep. Well, they'll actually. feel less dystopian. Oh, you know what's actually really weird? Pepsi was heavily influenced or heavily featured in Back to the Future Part 2. This is the antithesis, Coca-Cola. <laughs> this is what happens when you drink Coca-Cola. <laughs> That's fantastic. I'll take Blade Runner over Back to the Future Part 2 any day, honestly. Well, what future has me drinking beer? Like, just none of this, this one. sugar water. No, this one totally does. Mm. Like, there's beer. Cl- there's clearly beer in this one. Yes. There's not a whole lot of beer in Back well, to the Future well, Part 2. Which 80s movie did beer sponsor? Just all beer. <laughs> i don't drink soda oh well but uh yeah i'll also that whole scene in the uh the the bathroom they oh. literally put that in there just to be like hey he's a detective right can we see him doing detective work <laughs> and literally that wasn't even harrison ford that was <laughs> they just du- got a hand mop that, no that was his no like even the silhouette that yeah. was his stunt double from indiana jones oh wow because apparently he had such a resemblance that they're like hey you want to do this insert real quick he's like mm-hmm. sure am i getting paid absolutely um oh and the other thing the big so, eye yeah eye world i fucking love that um but uh i i do know that they resisted putting a fedora on harrison ford's hat to you know make him look more like sam spade or philip marlowe yeah but they literally were uh at the last second took it completely away because he was just off the set of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh. I mean, literally, he came off the plane to go shoot this movie with the hat still on him from the desert. <laughs> and they looked at him like, fuck, we got to get rid of it. Yeah. So they had. that's the reason why Harrison Ford does not wear a hat. Um, oh, and you know what's another really cool thing about uh, the weird inse- uh, like early stuff of Blade Runner that yeah. never got to be? What? Uh, you remember the the brilliant opening scene of uh, 2049? Yes. Uh, with the boiling pot? Mm-hmm. That scene was in the original script of this one. Oh. And it was, and it really was like, they were actually, I think they were uh, looking at um, several actors of the film noir genre, like much older actors mm-hmm. to do that. I think even Dustin Hoffman was like one of their top, oh, wow. top ones to do it. I love the intro to 2040, the, um the landscapes where you get to see yeah. if you thought the intro to this looked dystopian like holy this shit was so colorful and then they show you 2049 and the movie itself is very colorful but that opening scene where everything's white and gray and you went that's the fall of this universe yeah that's what these people think is dystopia is the post yeah. blackout oh i love that oh yeah like that's where they realize oh shit he's not human oh yeah stone cold bitch right there right oh you know what's even crazier Mm -hmm. they're actually in a freezer oh wow yeah for real that's because remember this is the uh the early cg days the only way to get that cold breath was to literally freeze the set they had to do the same thing with uh the exorcist um and that's why to this day linda blair hates the cold because they kept these things in uh frigid conditions Oh, it looks good, though. It doesn't it, look like over there. I think I saw a review of Rent that po- uh, pointed out how bad the CG fog was when they're singing in, like, the New York alleys. Yeah. And it's just so big and above their faces and fake. Mm-hmm. 
He, but I mean, again, when you do it in camera, it just looks so much better. And he looks so like with the ice and the blue eyes and the white hair. He really it just emphasizes his element as a person. And his like, again, no pun intended, his general coldness. Yes. You know, with but he's he's not like cool personality, just humanity. Yeah. Um, like he's very, he, Roy is very charming, actually. Oh, yeah. Um, but he's the most stone cold of all of them. Like, Leon's a bit awkward. Chris is a bit angry. Like, yeah. He's, like, the most centered, which mm -hmm. makes him the natural leader. Um, and Rutger Hauer, this is, a, like, this is just a performance of a lifetime. As a matter of fact, you know what? I really wish he lived just a few months longer. Because, as you know, he passed away about two months ago um, as of this recording. Uh, but I would have loved to think that if he had lived two two months longer, he would have been so dedicated to this role that he waited till November twenty nineteenth to die. You're choking up, aren't you? <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of that. Because oh, that would have been. He would have been so dedicated to the role that he would have died in November of twenty nineteen. Although technically, technically speaking, because his. Uh, uh, Roy's incept date, according to their, his intro in the the police station, it's January 2020. Oh! So this movie actually takes place from November 2019 to January 2020. We don't know, but that's apparently what what's going to happen, and that adds a little bit because I didn't realize this until a couple of weeks ago. The fact that he dies in the first month of the year 2020 is when he gains full hindsight vision oh, 2020 gets... vision shut up get out of my house this recording is over <laughs> i no. i think that's really subtle poetry honestly. i know but when you point it out it's cheesy a little bit yeah. it's just when i because i didn't actually think about it until i saw his inept incept date you can think of it as like the dawn of a new year as well yeah and this 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 deckard gets three whole months to kill off the replicants yeah brooke decker did it all in one day <laughs> really androids driven electric jeep is... he did it all in one day and it just broke him wow because he needed to buy a pet because you're not a good person unless you can care for somebody else something <laughs> else so he has to kill six things so that he can afford a fucking ostrich or something so that he can prove to other people that he's empathetic huh which is weird fascinating i like it i like the book a lot but they couldn't do all those weird animal mental illness themes that they did in the book otherwise this would be the most convoluted film ever yeah i'm actually curious though since you've seen the uh both you've read the book and you've seen the movie which do you prefer i that's a good question i prefer the movie but really? i think the book provides a lot more ex like extra i think like what the movie did was they picked one theme from the book and fully explored it at a deeper level than the book but the book has more themes that you can pick up on and discuss ah but i think that this took maybe a third of what was in the book and explored it to its fullest potential right on yeah um oh yeah decker trying to challenge uh, Rachel's humanity oh boy also I really love his apartment 
Like it's so lived in. And from what I've been told, it like was one of the reasons why this movie went way over budget. Oh, because it costs like little props that it costs like two hundred thousand dollars to make the, the just this set, which is nuts, nuts. But I'm so glad that they took the time because honestly, um, when they walked into that, they're like, this feels like an authentic apartment, which is such a cool thing. Especially compared to a lot of other science fiction that almost feels detachedly clean. Yeah. To have... This right here is some Ghost in the Shell shit. The memories implanted yeah. and whatnot. And how memories can be artificially Im and replaced and deceived. Like, this is Ghost in the Shell before Ghost in the Shell. There was another character in, a bo in the book who was a replicant for sure. Yeah. That was a detective who was working with uh, Deckard. And we knew he was a replicant and Deckard wasn't. Mm -hmm. And then he has to like kill him. Ooh. Ugh. Ooh. They folded that in to his character. That's the that's exactly what you solve every existential crisis with but he, whiskey. He, oh yeah, <laughs> he's the one who has the breakdown in the book because he just despises androids just mm. so much, and he's the one who's trying to talk Deckard through. It's like, oh, you know what? Oh, you, you know, they're nothing. You know, if you have trouble killing her, just sleep with her first. You know, and then get that out of the way. Like he is. Damn. Hates them, and then he realizes he might be one, and he's like, oh fuck, man. <laughs> Dude, that is a mind fuck. Yeah, because so, he can't kill Pris in the book because he likes Rachel, and they come from the same mold. They look exactly the same. They're essentially uh, sisters. So he's like, well, you know what? If you can't kill Pris because she looks like the girl you like, if you just fuck Rachel, you'll get it out of the way. Damn, that is some... Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so That's he some... does that. He kills the android anyway. And he buys his fucking ostrich or sheep or whatever. He buys a goat, and Rachel pushes it off the roof. Shit. Yeah. That, wow. That's... <laughs> okay, I lied. Maybe I like the book a whole lot better. Um, there's a lot to it, though. I, I'm, I don't believe in... A lot of people say you read the book first and watch the movie. I don't know. I feel like you get extra content if you watch the movie first. Yeah. And you watch the better version of a small thing. Mm -hmm. And then you get all the bonus content when you read. Yeah, I, uh, well, see, what I love to do is uh, I usually read the book first. Usually. Mm -hmm. um, especially if it's something really heady. Then I'll watch the movie. Um, although in most case, a lot of cases I've actually watched the film first. Um, but because I still need to, uh, check out, uh, um, Heart of Darkness and 2001. I don't know if I can really bring myself to The Shining because Stephen King's version just sounds so silly by comparison, but that's a whole nother podcast. There's, there's stuff that's less silly in books that would just look stupid on the screen. Yeah. I think the one thing that I would be interested in in The Shining that Stephen King pointed out about Jack Nicholson's character that I agree with yeah, is that he's kind of shown to be off the hinges and abusive from the get-go versus in King's story, he really wanted to show a normal man 
driven insane by insane circumstances. Right. Oh, that blimp. You know, actually, what I believe... this scene reminds me of is you keep bringing up uh, Ghost in the Shell. Yes. And that really long sequence where it's just two minutes of city scene. Yeah. They pepper that into this a lot. Mm-hmm. And well, you, there's there's a that. lot of moments where you know, the camera's just allowed to breathe, and you get to take in the sight and the city and the the mise en scene it's of it like all. It's like getting off of a plane and. You're in a city you've never been in, and you're exhausted and tired, and you're just trying to just figure out where everything wa- is mm-hmm. or was. Because remember, this is the birth of the cyberpunk genre, along with uh, Necromancer. Uh, Neuromancer. Neuromancer, excuse yes. me. Um, yeah, it's late. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, I think, really where the visuals of cyberpunk kind of got yep, there. Yep, especially with the neon. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually, you know, we were actually in Cincinnati, uh, downtown for the, uh, uh, what was it, uh, Bright? Blink. 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 That was actually where I, honest to God, felt like I was in the Blade Runner universe. Oh, yeah. If it was either raining and or snowing out and there were more drones flying around like the kind of you know camera or you know just fiber optic drones you would see in a park or whatnot flying through the uh, the the buildings i would have said holy shit i walked into blade runner oh yeah like it's because there were these giant projections on the wall these because you know it it felt like the avant-garde advertisements in uh, uh, Spike Jones's Her. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it just, I got this weird sense of ethereal city community, you know? Oh, yeah. Especially since, uh, oh, like, over a million people showed up to it the first year that it did, and it's just been growing. For uh, those of our listeners who are from out of town, um, we live in Cincinnati, Ohio, and once a year they do a festival called Blink. Um, in which buildings are encouraged to light up in neon colors, art installation and projections are put up on the wall, and the streets are closed down to allow people to walk through a, like, the entirety of downtown is this futuristic art installation. Um, yeah, and it's brilliant. It Honestly, you know what would be really cool if someone made a replica of that thing? Yeah, you know, maybe not fully functional, but you could... That's oh, what you should pitch for next blink is to have like a giant inflatable blimp or something with with, with like a, with like fiber optics lining around it. Yeah, that'd be kind of cool. Do a Blade Runner actually, you know what? I should city con- of Cincinnati pay us. I I actually would uh, contact uh, Adam Savage because oh, no, see, yeah. he actually made a uh, a very small small miniature of that very blimp, complete yeah. with LED screens of the same advertisements and everything. And it's about the size of a football. I wouldn't want just want to put a prop in the middle of the city. I'd want to take that aesthetic and, you know, kind of bring it to that more, I guess, more positive community vibe that, like, Blink had. Yeah. But definitely incorporating. I love the idea of something floating over the whole event. Yes. That would be dope. I um, think we should have something fly. Yes. Because uh, that's, it's so cool. And, and you know what? The um, Another thing about uh, Adam Savage that... He is probably the world's foremost expert on um, Rick Deckard's uh, pistol. Oh. He has built... I've not ver- paid too much attention to that pistol, so... He has probably built every single model that has ever existed 
and he's built probably the closest replica to the original pistol as you can physically get. I forgot like what these guys are. Those are uh, uh, small are they... androids, which I'm sorry. They tried really hard. They're just little people. I'm sorry. I can't. They're, just, I know. They're little people in costumes, and I just don't buy them as like robots. Mm-hmm. Give those extras some more mime training or whatnot. Or um, like when they're sitting still later on, actually use like a dummy and oh, not yeah. just have an actor stand still. Because it just Some looks... Some good puppetry would, would be... When you mix up the effects, then I think I would sell the effect more. But mm-hmm. um, but although you, that does bring it up, uh, Sebastian, who's the guy who brought him yeah, in. Yeah, where does he... Because that was a name change. So where does J.F. Sebastian come from versus J.R. Eisdorf? I'm not name? entirely sure. I guess they just... Uh, um, I mean, I know he's based on uh, Isidore, but... I, I guess they just changed the name for some unknown reason. But uh, you know what is cool, though? Is what? that uh, it got reincorporated into one of my favorite Batman animated series episodes. Wait, Sebastian? Yeah. They actually brought in the same guy who played him. There's the unicorn. Um, they actually got the same guy to play him as a, char- a side character who works for Wayne Enterprises and makes an artificial intelligence called Hardak. And they make replicants. Oh they gosh. literally use the word replicant. They went full Blade Runner <laughs> with Batman the Animated Series, oh, and it's awesome. Great. And then there's one, like a co- post-episode, where they uh, before the hard act was destroyed, it made a replicant of Bruce Wayne, and that replicant wakes up in a warehouse where some thieves are trying to steal the it's a old equipment. It gains sentience and thinks it's Batman. Oh, and Chuck Beach is the thieves. Well, it also is... It also gains sentience and is like, I'm Batman. I have memories. I have. I remember faces, names, oh. things. It's like, can you remember your first kiss? Do you remember the last time you had a good steak? Yeah. No, I don't. Oh. Which is so cool. Like they had, that was the first, I think that was one of my first exposures to Blade Runner. Like ever was like, uh, uh, I think it. You see it referenced a lot. Like I like in a pop culture way. No, I, they totally like e- they even went as far it. to get uh, William Stevenson who plays Sebastian in this movie. Oh my god. They even draw his character to his likeness mm-hmm. and his character is constantly surrounded by little robot friends to keep him company just like Sebastian. Oh man. It's awesome. Yeah. And this is another really great scene. This is where uh the cliche of enhance, enhance. is born. This is not how photographs work. I am a photographer. I have worked with high-resolution images both digitally and physically, like actual celluloid. This is not how this works. There was one insane <laughs> person I met on DeviantArt who specifically, they drew these drawings that did do that. Oh, really? Where it was like a full-scale battle, and then you could zoom in because it's all digital art. And just you'd see a portrait, and it was a perfect quality portrait. If you zoomed in, they got the type of detail where... On a woman, you could draw the hairs on her face. Holy crap. Like, yeah. So they just kept zooming in. I kept doing more detail because they could. I don't want to think about how much time it would have had to render that. Well, enough to get on the front page. Right? Because, <laughs> dude, that is, that is some sick level of detail. Oh, yeah. Like, just to render and export it and try to post it. Like, we must have been talking about... 
you know, tens, potentially even hundreds of gigabytes just for an image. Yeah. That's nuts. But also there's the, uh, there's another thing that this does. It's just like, this doesn't work that way. Enhance. (laughs) Wait, it goes around the corner. Yes, exactly. This is Batman, like Adam West Batman TV logic. Um, is there they a have... way that a camera could take a 3D scan like that? Um, there I are. I know there's hologram capturing cameras, there's... or if there were multiple cameras in the room there that are... a computer could put together in its computer brain. There are cameras that have multiple lenses and take it at the simultaneously. It's actually kind of the basis of how uh, the bullet time effect in, in the, the Matrix, Matrix was yeah. made, where they have uh, take multiple uh, uh, still images. Um, or at least uh, one camera with multiple lenses take an image at the same time to get a full 360-degree view. But the way it moves in perspective in here, it's just not it's just not quite the same how that works. Mm-hmm. And plus, when he is dealing with an already printed photograph... Oh, yeah, no, yeah. you put a printed... No. It, it there's just, a possibility you could have security systems well, with there's multiple also cameras. Well, there's also but... another way that it might work, because if you remember in 2049, which I actually really thought this was really cool, um, when uh, Kay is look- is in the middle of uh, the town square having his lunch, you know, right before the prostitutes go over him, he's actually looking at um, pictures of the, uh, the Rachel's burial site. Mm-hmm. But the pictures are moving, almost like they're sheets of paper with video on them yeah. like a, a printed give almost i yeah. guess in what the clo- the equivalent is in our universe so maybe it's like a early version of a video file or something i don't know but the point is like a lot with a lot of this stuff that's going on is shut up it sounds cool oh yeah like even that's that's the other thing like do you know why this is called a blade why they're called blade runners what i shit you not it was just because... Uh, it sounds cool. Uh, well, okay, so here's the original story about this. Uh, and I really do love how the serial numbers are like ingrained into all the DNA, which oh, is yeah. really cool. Um, but uh, what it was is uh, originally it was supposed to be called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? They thought that was too wordy. So I think they went settled where, for uh, a working title called Dangerous Days, uh, which wound up being the title of the making of documentary mm-hmm. um and eventually that sounds th- a little more too generic that doesn't pop out exactly and then they went with uh this book um uh oh god i forget i forget uh who who wrote it um um but they uh, but uh they just uh, bought the rights to that book and uh they just called it blade runner just because they they thought that sounds really really cool <laughs> um, they just saw words they liked and were like, can we use this? Although, do you know what it's used in the original book? I think it's just used as, as the title, like, very just no. Well, in the, ori- in the original book, um, Blade Runner, which has no resemblance to this. Oh, the original book. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I, thought, I was like, uh, when did they say Blade Runner? Because the, they just say it in passing and nope. Androids, but... Nope. Uh, they... Uh, Oh, God, I really wish I remember what it was. Um, But uh, I do remember that uh, the original term for Blade Runner in the book that they bought the rights to the title for, it's actually uh, for a term of illegal surgeons uh, dealing in uh, uh, surgical uh, tools. Ooh. Yeah. 
they deal with illegal like surgical tools. Like an arms tools. dealer, but yeah. for... Blade yeah. Runner, which is hence where all the scalpels come from. Oh, that's, that actually sounds like an interesting yeah. story. Oh, it, uh, I Alan... would love to leave, like read that and then just have science fiction to throw at healthcare issues yeah, or so something. The, no uh, the novel is called The Blade Runner, all one word, mm -hmm. um, from 1974 by Al uh, Alan E. Norse. Mm -hmm. They use Blade Runner to sell the book now. That's yeah. the title you'll see if you buy a oh, copy of it. Well, see, after the movie was made, they they literally just like took away Phil K. Dick's original title, Do Android Dream, Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, yeah. and just slapped the title Blade Runner Sometimes over it. Sometimes you see Blade Runner or, or stuff like that. Did you know Phil K. Dick actually saw the work for of this? What did he think of it? He loved it. I'd imagine, yeah. Believe it or not, he he was actually pissing on this movie through the, the entire production he was like i fucking hate this don't want it to happen fuck you filmmakers i hate you and then he saw the cityscapes just like the i think he saw the the very first the, just the opening titles mm. of the movie and he's like how the fuck did you get inside my head because this is one <laughs> of the really great examples of like a lot of people think a good adaptation is a faithful accurate adaptation this is a very unfaithful, inaccurate adaptation to the plot, the characters, the actual goings-on in the book. They leave, like, two-thirds of it out. Yeah. But thematically and visually, it is immersive and wonderful. Yeah. So when people are saying, oh, this movie would be good if only they remembered this detail about this thing. If you start caring whether or not your movie's accurate, it's because the movie's so boring that you're sitting there thinking of, uh, whether so and so's hair was the same color. Yeah. Yeah. But uh oh my god. But I just really love the fact that Phil K Dick cuz he saw this right before his death. Uh the movie actually uh premiered just after he passed away, mm -hmm. but he did see the uh a work print copy and he loved it. So I can only so imagine glad. if he saw this version of the oh. film. Like it's it's insane. And look, this is another thing that I really I love, love the graffiti, the, the high tech with the low. See, it looks like a touch tunes in a dive bar. Is yes. what it looks like. Also, I really love the uh, the kind of shitty eighties music that's going on. Oh yeah. And apparently, like there was supposed to be like a full show, like there was going to ha we were going to have Zora raised out of the mud. Mm -hmm. And the stake comes out through the mud, and there was going to be a huge dance sequence. There was storyboarded. There was artwork for it. They never shot it. Oh, yeah. They just got too expensive. And um, they actually realized, you know what? It's probably best that we don't distract people with the show, because that's not what Deckard's here for. He's not here to watch the show. Yeah. He's here to get information. Mm -hmm. The show is interesting in the book, because it kind of covers that little debate that like artists have it's like oh is art something that's high up that only a human emotion can make because she's like this opera singer who knows everything about like painting and all that and it's like if a robot can understand art yeah that's it's a just one of those little things that people say they can't do that you see somebody say uh, and huh. her, her whole plot is um instead of hiding with everybody else she wants to go get a job and be useful to society because she thinks if she gets a job and she's a good singer and all of that, then they won't question that she's a human. Fascinating. It's a good book. 
I really it's a good book. Too. I know. I believe me. The, I the only reason why I put it off is because I wanted you to be the expert. For oh this yeah. That's the only reason. Um, but I really do love uh, Harrison Ford's like nasally accent that he uses in here to make him a little more geeky. I've heard it's a reference to like this old film noir where the detective pretends to be like, mm -hmm. yeah, yep. a book collector or something. Yes, just to get a little bit more info. Mm -hmm. But I love it, like little union rep boy. <laughs> it always felt a little <laughs> bit weird, like because like she's naked pretty much throughout this entire scene, and it's just like, how is this registering? <laughs> <laughs> like, how do I know that you're? It's it's crazy that she doesn't ask the the same question, like the, or the obvious question, like how do I know that I'm you're not one of those pervs? Oh yeah, motherfucker. Like, answer me that. Well, I think on one hand, if you're a stripper, you're not going to be that shy. Uh, so it's Good almost point. more him acting nervous is kind of funny. True. It's a little bit of comic relief before what's going to be a, a pretty intense scene. Yeah, no kidding. But like, one of the most intense, for sure. Yeah, the first first blood for this movie. Cause, well, actually, I think this was the whole reason why the international cut exists, because... Like the U.S. Um, cut, probably saw, just nipples or something. Well, it's not. Well, it's not that, but it's just how violent the scene oh. was. Yeah. I don't usually think of the U.S. as censoring violence. Really? I have a friend who works in like international cuts and has had to take stuff out. Yeah. For, um, like he's had to take out sound effects that have made things. Remember, violent. you can kill as many people as you want, but if you show a nipple, it's bad. Yeah, but I that's... was just imagining like. When you said European cut, like, oh, more nipple during the shower, camera no. angle's different in the U.S. or something. No, uh. not really. Um, it's mostly for the, uh, the the violence, believe it or not, which is, uh, the MPAA is so fucking weird. Yeah. But, uh, and then finally, like, shit. Yeah. Don't, do not fuck with these replicants, man. They are strong. Also, that's another thing that I really love, the costume choice. It's just a clear raincoat. Like, she's... It's, it's still, like, showing that she's almost wearing nothing at all. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to think of whether there's there's a metaphor to covering up with something that doesn't cover up anything, or hiding with a clear lie, or I don't know. But I'm... I think it's mostly because it looks really, really dope once it gets in the neon. Yeah, yeah. That's, and with the uh, the glass and everything. I think generally just clear reflecting neon lights. And and that's also a really dangerous thing to do. Have like anything reflective or shiny on a film set, really oh, yeah. really dangerous. Oh, cause in case the little it camera. Well, if because it, it can reflect you know everything from the uh, the 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 script supervisor and you know the director and all the crew members and everything. Like mm -hmm. it's that's a scary thing to have, man. <laughs> I'll tell you what. But again, it's also really. You know what? Also, um, it, this is a precursor to what? Tim Burton's Gotham. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Like so much of this stuff is so it was really innovative, and I know it's also because of like you know the momentum of uh, sci-fi and you know crazy, crazy visuals and create creativity going on in sci-fi and the genre and. Mm -hmm. uh, not to mention the special effects getting super, super good. Um, but because uh, uh, I know, um, you know, from 
the momentum that was built up from Yodorowsky's uh, Dune, which is a great, great thing that you sh- all should uh, look up. Uh, he got pr- Ridley Scott got access to a whole bunch of stuff. He got Giger. He got uh, Jean Giraud Mobius. Ooh. Um, Mobius actually worked on quite a bit of this, believe it or not. For real? Yeah. There's and it kind of shows, which is really cool. I also love how this scene shows, like, the overpopulation. And yeah. The crowdedness of the city. I also love the... Why Why don't we have the neon umbrellas? You know? It would be cool. We should. I mean, we have clear umbrellas. That should be something they should sell at Blink. <gasps> the neon umbrellas. Oh, my gosh. If it was raining, I would. I could... We could. You could just get a clear umbrella. Though, exactly. And get an LED strip. Probably. Just mod that in your house. It yeah, would take dude. ten minutes and like twenty five dollars. Yeah, dude. I'm gonna have to get you like a. a cl- I want a clear raincoat. <laughs> a clear raincoat now. Yeah, I want a clear raincoat. <laughs> I actually want like a yellow one that like, like the one that Joy has in twenty forty nine, like clear but colored. Right. Yeah, right. Those look really cool to me. Oh, here. Oh. This. Oh. Okay, this is actually another big sh- I thing. Love this shot. Um, I'm gonna. Oh, but you all. I think the clear also. The, the reflections. B- well, you get to see the reflections. I forgot that you get to see all of the blood and it clinging to the surface. Yep. And being carried around with her. Yep. But here's nothing crazy. That's head replacement right there. Head replacement. That uh, for the original cuts. Um, it was very obvious that it was a stunt double because even though that uh, glass is sugar, um, it's very, still really, really dangerous to work with. If you're wearing so, yeah, almost nothing. Too. So uh, Ridley Scott said, I'm not going to have uh, that actress go through that for real. We're going to have a stunt. The stunt woman did it phenomenally, but she had this awful wig and it was super obvious that it was a different person. And it really took you out of the moment. So they actually went back for this version, brought the original actress back in, who aged oh, phenomenally I love well. The I love that. Um, who aged phenomenally well, and they actually had her do a green screen shoot where they replace digitally replaced the stunt uh, stunt woman's head with her own. So throughout the entire scene, it truly is her performance. Oh wow! Yeah, it's awesome really really cool that's the one thing that they actually uh did some additional photography for this version oh man i love from that angle she actually looks plastic oh yeah you know and she's running through like a hallway of i guess mannequins keep appearing in this movie that is true isn't it yeah and chris even stages herself as a mannequin yes final in her final scene Oh, I love this scene. Not a lot of people have talked about that significance, so I'm piecing that together right now in my brain. Yeah. Oh, his the, his the little po- sit down where he just needs where he where he just feels so sick to his stomach to what he did. Yeah. He just needs a drink, and I love this little moment right here. He's just so vulnerable. It's like he's ready to burst. He just wants to burst out and just talk to someone and get. His feelings off his chest. Oh, yeah. Do you, you ever know? have those feelings? Like, there are days that I have where it's like, I don't want to talk to any of my, like, friends or anything like that because there's a sort of, sort of reciprocation where when you, like, 
you're expected to act fine. You're expected to act okay. Mm-hmm. And if you act negatively, then it's an invitation for them to also share their pain. And you don't have, like, the pressure for that emotional labor, like, right now. On days like that, some of the best things to do, like, are go to a grocery store or go to a bar and have that almost fake interaction with a real human to, like, smile at somebody and have human interaction, but there's, like, a script there. So just getting a beer from somebody at a ramen stand is so much less effort than it is to try to talk about your feelings with somebody. Huh. You know, well, very safe. It's 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 social interaction, but it's not social interaction. Yeah, it's it's a safe dose of humanness without having to actually let yourself be vulnerable. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting tactic. Mm-hmm. God, I love the the rain. How he uses it. You know, it's it's crazy how the rain is almost on and off in each individual scene. Like here, that there's a smoke. In the previous, there was rain. And it goes back and on and off in varying degrees. And you can tell that's just based on how freaking hard it was to maintain and, you know, oh, yeah. maintain continuity between <laughs> days and whatnot. You could almost imagine that in a big city, though, if there's, like, overhanging buildings or alleyways or a flying bus overhead. Mm-hmm. Like, when you're in the city, you find, like, times where you're walking safely underneath an overpass for a long time then you get out and the rain's there again and you go into the subway and it's gone yep or some ways where uh it's because it's a spillway there's just like pouring rain off of a side of a building or a bridge but when you actually step out it's just like a light mist oh yeah because it's all just accumulating oh i love this whole speech by leon Yep. That's a really great way to, to, like the uncertainty of his mora- uh, his uh, mortality. God, even and just he his... just saw another one die. So. Oh shit! He was about to poke like poke his eye out. Like squeeze his eyes. Wake out. up! Time to die is also a great description of how replicants basically live their lives. Yeah, they're all four. Yeah. It, although it is kind of fitting that uh, oh yeah that's that's the other thing leon's uh spirit or animal avatar is a turtle oh slow, because of the tortoise. slow well not just the tortoise but he's also very slow very deliberate very strong mm-hmm. like physically but not very smart i wish they used more of those the, those the m- actual physical animals in the movie a little bit more motifs maybe because the animal motif was pretty strong in the book but I would, I, I don't know. I would have liked those to be fully realized. Yeah, that and because, you know, in this universe, all animals are basically extinct. Yes. So it's an interesting way to, uh, another layer of how they keep those animals going. Even yeah. though they're all artificial, there's also this whole spiritual side to it as well. Oh, yeah. Not there's just a the physical full-on religion in mm-hmm. the book about you know, why you have to maintain a pet like as part of your due diligence as a human being and why he's willing to kill people just to have a goat or something on a cage in his roof right yeah so speaking of the animals uh how do you feel about the unicorn dream sequence about the unicorn dream sequence yeah i i know a lot of people can't stand it i have a very 
weird opinion. I, I guess unpopular opinion about the is Deckard a replicant type thing. Yeah. Is, I don't know, that feels like a gimmick to me. The is he, isn't he, the top and Inception, are they really? I'm almost glad it was canonized because I don't think it's the most interesting thing about the movie. That's I fair. I don't think it matters if Deckard's a replicant or not, no matter how much you want to argue it. I don't think it affects the themes of the movie. That's, uh, well, it does affect it, but not to the extent that people make it out to be. Yeah, it's more of a, it's, it's more of a fun little fan debate. And I think there's more interesting things to talk about. Very true. I don't hate it. Yeah. But I think the the dream sequence shows him dreaming of a unicorn. And since the guy puts down an origami of the unicorn, it means that he knows what his dreams are. Thus, dun, dun, dun. But I don't know what else it symbolizes besides that. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean. If you have insight on the. Well, because honestly, like. The symbolism of the unicorn. Well, yeah, it's true. Um, I, although, you know what's you know what's really interesting though, because like, mm-hmm. for the longest time, um, I always said that the question of whether or not he is or not mm-hmm. is more interesting than the answer, which is why I was so against the sequel being made. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, if I actually had to answer it myself as an interpretation, mm-hmm. you know what I actually would say? What? He is human. That's and canatonically speaking, like the way that they set it up is uh, it could go either way. Because I know Ridley Scott has said he's made it specifically ambiguous. Yeah. However, even though he even does, though he word of God it later, but I never count word of God as canon. Well, he yeah, he uh, he says his preferred interpretation is that he is a replicant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and speaking of which, here's our little hint right here that you get with the eyes mm-hmm. now granted that's just because of blocking because the the way that they were able to get that effect is they had a very specific light shined onto a mirror at a 45 degree angle into the actor's eyes but it's kind of cool that the only time you see deckard like that is when he's really blurry and off screen so and when it? he's <laughs> and when he's attempting to connect to rachel oh which is yeah another really but that's only because of the proximity of to the actual effect on camera. <laughs> so, um, but Ridley Scott does subscribe to the idea that he is, in fact, a replicant. Yeah. Um, which, again, I'm okay with. But I like to think that um, be, because I like to think that Deckard is human, mm-hmm. just because uh, it, it it becomes more of an arc about understanding. Uh, the other se- the other side yeah like it, it's kind of like a a, a a a person with a history of racism coming to terms of the awfulness that it is exactly and whether or not twist at the turn at, at the end you're you've been one of them the entire time um i don't i don't think it affects because since he doesn't know and none of the characters know mm-hmm. and really only kind of word of god some proof around maybe origami guy knows um we as an audience figure that out it doesn't affect his interactions no and it doesn't affect the way that he comes to terms with the humanity of the replicants i love vangelis's love theme Mm -hmm. like this because you mentioned like how this is like your chillaxing mix yeah this is like 
before my white noise mix comes on. Because <laughs> I'm a very picky sleeper. <laughs> I can't hear anything. I have to have like some music on. I have to have like 85 blankets. I have to have like have to go to the bathroom like i think like one minute before i get into bed <laughs> otherwise i'll wake up yeah right but i i always have like some white noise or some music on and blade runner's a good one i've just always been a fan of you know the old film noir like mm -hmm. smooth sexy saxophone jazz that, that that you would hear and because this has like an etherical dreamlike uh spin on that yeah it just elevates it even more, I think, because um, like one of my like people like a really great question that I love asking people to get a idea of their sensories is what's your favorite sound? Mm -hmm. For me, it's the saxophone and footsteps in the snow. Oh gosh! Yeah. So this I, is. Just... There's a little pond in the in the park, by uh, my parents' house that has like frogs. Yeah. And they sound so pretty. <laughs> I love frog sound. Um, then probably thunder and train tracks. Nice. Like, I like that. Because I lived next to that train for a while, and I'm like, it just sounded so nice. <laughs> Some people hate it, but I'm like, oh. It's like the low growling sounds are good, too. <laughs> I love the way that he just moves in like that. The photographs are also another really... Uh... Uh, are another interesting recurring theme mm -hmm. at least with the whole idea of memory you know oh yeah i wish they had fleshed out that just a little bit more but is that something that they do in the book um background stories no not really uh, well i mean even just with like the use of photographs mm. as memories no i can't i can't recall that mm. if anything like He's got a bitchy wife. Oh, like his home <laughs> life. They've got a mood organ where you can just plug in what you want to feel, and he just plugs in, feel happy, and don't question me. But then she plugs in, like, depression, and he's like, why? And she's like, well, something bad happened, and I didn't feel sad, so I wanted to feel sad. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. She huh. doesn't like him because he won't bring home a fucking roof ostrich or something. This is where some very fascinating questions get raised. Oh my gosh. Like it does if this technically count as like it does this technically oh, count as rape? It's definitely a rape scene, but it's not done in the it's not done in in the the traditional the, the sense. Violent awful it it's you understand why people do that. He's he's yearning for this connection. Yeah. And then it's rejected to him. And so he resorts to violence, which is what he's been told he has to do yeah. the entire time. And then it raises the question is, if you admit that this is assault, you're admitting that she's human, in my mind. Yeah. Which is... Because it, it, if you can... And then the, I guess the other question is if you can be okay with murdering an android just because they're an android, then you're saying that they don't have value as in the same way that humans do. So yeah, sentience. If you if you if you're not objecting to the murder, you can't object. 
So I think I'd I I'd almost want it to be more problematic because Squint in it's a love scene. Yeah. Squint in it's one of those. Oh, he kisses her and then she realizes that she really wants him, even though she says no. Where it's more of a he gets her to say yes. Yeah. She doesn't want to. Oh, and then we have Pris in her ma- in her iconic makeup. Do you know what actually? In the book, she still doesn't want to, but she has motivations behind it. Yes. She's trying to, I think, seduce him so that he relates to the replicants more. Hmm. So, so, so she's... playing to to playing to that kind of empathy. Yeah, saying that okay, if you can have this sort of sexual connection with me, then you won't be able to kill a replicant later because she just. She doesn't vibe with that. And when he still kills the replicants, she kills his goat. Damn. Because she just. See, this is where. This is where my aesthetic comes. I love that like 80s Berlin goth look. Yeah. Like, it's great. But see right here where you just know it's an actor. I think that should have been a puppet. right? I really wish they had used a puppet just so we because it's it's the old uh, James Cameron method. Where you use multiple different special effects, so the effect is never. There's the eyes. Um, the effect you never get used to one way how they did it. It becomes multiple mm-hmm. ways, and therefore your eyes can never adjust to the effect. Yeah, I always thought the little robots were weird and didn't add too much. Yeah. Yeah, I guess they. I guess her being able to pose as a mannequin is the pur- purpose behind all of that. Yeah. But I think it should have been puppets. I think that would have been a creepier and less like a Terry Gilliam children's film. <laughs> like, although, do you know uh, that um, Daryl Hannah actually came up with the makeup idea herself? <gasps> oh, really? She nice. based it off of Werner Herzog's uh, um, vampire makeup in Nosferatu. Oh, whoa! Yeah, no lie. Like that's where that's from. Mm-hmm. Sebastian, he's such a he's such a lone he's he's such a lonely little boy. Oh, uh, that's uh, that's the other thing. Sebastian, uh, his because he's so timid and small and uh, kind of grayish, if you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, his his animal is supposed to be a mouse. Oh, absolutely, I can see that. Yeah, I love 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 his character in the book. I love his relationship with Pris and the concept of, like, the androids having low EQ and him having low IQ and neither of them being considered human. And then you hope that they're going to reconcile. You hope that these two sides of society will actually create, like, a more human society than... And you hope that she's really empathizing with him. Mm. And then he finds this little spider. And a wild animal is like the most sacred thing. So he captures it in a little pill bottle and he's so proud and he shows her. She's like, why do they have so many legs? And pours it out on the table and calls over to Roy. And Roy has a wife in the book. Oh, okay. And aren't a thing. Um, c- come over and check this out. I think it could run with four legs. Do you think it could run with four legs? And he so pulls them off. She's she cuts him off with the little nail scissors as he begs her not to. And then the, they talk about the spider just kind of giving up on life and sitting there resigned. And she, she says, "I still think it could run. I just think it doesn't want to. Give me a lighter." Holy shit! 
and she keeps torturing it until he takes it and drowns it. And he's really into the animal empathy, but he he has to kill the animal, otherwise she'll keep torturing it. Whoa. And it's one of the hardest scenes to read. Damn. I'm and gonna... then that's the moment you realize, maybe on the other hand, I'm gonna have empathy a hard... is necessary, and on the other hand, maybe they're not human. That raises the other side. I'm going to have a really hard time uh, reading that, dude. Yeah. It's, I think it's only like two pages <laughs> of spider torture, but... Either way, that's... that's yikes that actually is why the spider in my garden is named Pris. <laughs> <laughs> oh by the way have you heard about the uh, the t-shirt war that went on during set no i do not know about the t-shirt war. okay so because the american crew was so fucking like uh just so fed up with his working style and whatnot and his perfectionism and just how much he was taking time up time yes that uh uh i believe uh they had um they mockingly called him constantly the governor because <laughs> he was english yeah uh <laughs> and eventually they actually created t-shirts that said yes governor my ass <laughs> like yes governor on the front my ass on the front and the back and so Scott responded with a t-shirt of his own that said xenophobia sucks <laughs> and actually came onto set wearing a hat that said governor <laughs> as opposed to director like That's the hat. <laughs> but apparently like it got actually got the crew to laugh a little bit to the point where like okay like things were getting we can actually yeah, well, breathe. you can take a roast. <laughs> exactly. So there was actually a little bit of a t-shirt war going on. Of course, um, like early in like the press actually read that as like, oh, Ridley Scott clashes with the crew and whatnot. And like, no, it wasn't. It was just like them just, just like, on set roasting. Yeah, because he he honestly just wanted to dissuade it's, it. Especially with like acting is you get drama. Yeah. Surprise. Oh yes, and of course the chess game. Um, I forget the pieces are little else. Well, I also know that by, uh, by either chance or design, it's never really been confirmed. Um, like people, like uh, I know uh, Ridley Scott's been addressing it, but it's supposed to be uh, based off of uh, um, the Immortal Game, uh, which is like one of the most famous chess games ever played. Ah, uh, wait, the position of the pieces? Are yes. Actually a reference that's dope um now i know that I, I'm, from what i said he says oh it's just a bunch of rubbish but mm. apparently like uh there's i forget exactly the the players but i know it's like one of the most famous chess games ever played called the immortal game uh where uh it was one in a gambit uh i love that <laughs> but it was one with a gambit of a sacrifice sacrifice of uh, a queen. Ooh. Yeah. So it was a really, really famous game. And I forget who plays it, which I should know a little bit better because I'm actually a really f uh, fond of chess. Well, you like follow the players and everything? Uh, not necessarily. But um, you know I, I feel like I should. The chess I feel... world, and you're kicking yourself for not knowing. No, I just no, I just feel like I should know the history of it a little bit better. Oh, yeah. That's just me. I look and it up, but it's late. Chess too. What's that? Chess too. 
chess too? It was invented by some MIT students who felt that chess was too close to being a solved game and that a lot of times when they were playing chess, they felt like they just knew, okay, that position in the board, I have to do this and wanted more, oh gosh, try, trying to think on your feet and improvise. Uh. So they have invented all these new pieces and all these new like board designs. Cool. Yeah. So that they could play chess fresh again without you know having the entire well, history of everybody memorizing what move is the most strategic to play because that's almost what chess is now it is no it totally memorization, is memorization brute force memorization it's a close i don't know if it's a solved game mathematically but it's been played for thousands of years so yeah. this is the best move to make in this situation i actually think that by now it is a mathematically solved game mm -hmm. um which is why you have computers to, that beat grand chess masters like the legendary uh robert fisher oh yeah who uh lost uh i believe in like the uh, the, the the early 80s late 70s I, f I forget exactly when my my history is a little sloppy right now mm -hmm. <clears throat> but uh yeah this match here is based it is has very similar semblance to the immortal game which is really cool. And I also think it's really interesting that they have to play the maker in order to grant access to his office. Oh. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. He's almost testing them. Yep. There's always... Anytime chess is used in film, there's always interesting underscore that I really love doing. One of these days, I really kind of want to have an entire scene based off around uh, the game. Oh, yeah. Because it's a wonderful, wonderful metaphor. Sometimes it could be used, obviously. Sometimes it could be more used more subtly. And the sometimes really creatively. The question is how to make it fresh. Yes. Because I've seen a lot of it. Oh, of course. You can look into the history of some people who played. Uh, I think there was one child prodigy who got really good at chess, solved it, got bored of it, and everybody wanted to play him. Yeah. So people hated him because he would either, you know, remove seven pieces from the board, turn around and read a book and just call out like squares. <laughs> uh, one of his favorite things to do was, you know, he had retired from the game, like go to chess halls and just sit there, <laughs> have a cup of tea and like leave and not play anybody. <laughs> so I'd love for somebody to play chess like an asshole. <laughs> Can the maker repair what he makes? Expand my lifestyle. You know what's another really great thing that I really, really fucking wish that they'd followed through with? What? There was an alternate ending to this. They never actually shot it. The scene or the movie? Uh, th for this scene. Mm. Um, it was in the script. They just didn't have the time to film it. Um, but when uh, Roy realizes he can get no more life and... Uh, destroys his uh uh his his creator's head mm -hmm. well first off they made a twenty thousand dollar fake head for him to crush that never made it to final cut because they weren't convinced of it oh Which, like crushed between his hands yep. that shows like his yep. strength and reminds you that he's not human versus it, going with the metaphor of destroying the eyes yeah but uh, well i mean the actual effect they didn't like it yeah. so they chucked twenty thousand dollars for nothing which sucks but here's the alternate ending that i actually wish they followed through with yes when he crushes his head 
like through the eyeballs and everything, instead of blood spurting out, it's wires. I, I just think that dun dun dun, he's a replicant. No, the th well, the thing is, uh, Tyrell is still in the building, oh, just in cryo sleep. Just in cryo sleep. Um, the god has found immortality through his replicants. Oh, that he's like he's continually just downloading his brain into a into a replicant. So you have a different type of replicant, one that has authentic human memories. Yeah, I think that would be interesting if you fully explored it and then showed the cryo tube and stuff like that. Yeah, I think just oh, they had the art okay. for the cryo tube and everything. Like Tyrell was kept alive literally just to be to keep the company going to keep the stocks up oh man that's that was the whole reveal like that when he crushed his head like there would be wires and sparks and you know mm -hmm. uh, mechanical ooze okay. coming from him yeah. which i thought it would have been so cool you know i have to i have to sit and think on whether i like that better than i i just love the death scene as it is right now so to, well, it's I'm, also the yeah. them, the whole thematic yeah. idea of going through the eyes. Yeah. And I also really love how, because this was also, again. And of how, how, like, what you created will destroy you. This was actually Rutger Hauer's idea to kiss him right before death. Yeah. Which was honestly a really cool idea. Mm -hmm. And he was also, had he had a line. Because that is almost the. Oh, God. I feel like the only person, like, a straight man would kiss on, like, the lips like that would be, like, your own, like, father. Yeah. I feel like it's it's very intimate. Yeah. It's either familiar or romantic, and it's not romantic, so. No. That is quite literally the kiss of death right yeah. there. Although Rutger Hauer had a line, and I really kind of wish that he tried to do it. Um, it was uh, a line that you could either interpretate interpret as being father or fucker just as he's squeezing it's just like fucker! another i would uh, like to see it yeah or at least tr him really try, try to perform it, it. Mm -hmm. uh that's the idea that they wanted to go with which again I adds think, a whole nother layer shows that familial i wish that i loved you type but I, I resent everything you've made me to be. Well, I'll give it in this. 2019 sure looks, sure does the, or this, or our version of 2019, this isn't too far off, I'm not going to lie. You say that with every science fiction film. Well, I mean, just because of how, Elaborate. How run down. Well, it's don't just yell "Okay, boomer" into the mic. <laughs> well, it's just so run down and beat up. Oh yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's like what you Although with, the... with dystopia and future society is. I don't think things will necessarily get better or worse. I think technology is going to change and raise more psychological questions or overpopulation will drive us to isolate ourselves, and then we'll be ironically more lonely than ever i don't think things get better i don't think things they just get morph. worse i think that people in the 80s looked at this and said yeah this looks like my apartment outside new york and that's why it ages well is because it's realistically shitty mm-hmm
but not so dystopian that you don't see it in your daily life. There aren't rape gangs wandering around, like, it's just dirty and full of poverty and... And multicultural. Multicultural. Although, Although one, not in any of the speaking roles. There, there is, yeah. There is one thing that I do kind of uh, want to take back, though. Because I remember, um, there it is, Spinner. Um, I remember when 2019 finally came around the corner, and I'm like, yes, bring up my flying car. I want my flying car. I realized that would be a terrible thing right now. Oh, Not just yeah. because people fucking can't drive on the ground. Why would you put them in the air? The emissions alone. But the other thing is, and I love how it's actually implied through this world, all the flying cars are specifically for government vehicles. Oh, yeah. Which, well, if, if you go to the idea of, like, everybody has to pull off the road for an ambulance, mm -hmm. or policemen are allowed to run, like, red lights, Yeah, is... Yeah, that's basically they would just, just a high-tech way of running a red light. Yeah. Uh, cause... Which is actually nice. I get tired of pulling over for ambulances. Uh, well, actually, I, it terrifies me now because let's say the fly we do have flying cars. They let's can let's say we do. If they are become they would become government only vehicles because that just gives them more power to them. Oh yeah. And less to us. Mm -hmm. That's really that's really so I'm kind of actually glad. You got me thinking glad. of surveillance and I, and then I looked at Pris's makeup and there's a there's a punk makeup movement where um people are pushing makeup that specifically confuses facial recognition software oh so it'll be like bold bangs in multiple colors or um you know square like squares and, and rectangles on your face and it's inspired by the old uh razzle dazzle camouflage they used to use in ships they applied it to the human face and it can outwit computer sensors because they don't know where your face begins and ends huh now you have to walk around looking like a 1980s berlin punk goth juggalo but they can't reckon they can't That's, recognize you that you is to commit some, to the look that is some minority sh report shit it's dude. awesome yeah <laughs> That's that was at cool. that uh the same art exhibit that i was talking about earlier right on yeah, it's called cv dazzle is the look dude that's cool um, oh man the way they photographed the because this is the uh the bradbury building which has been used on hundreds of different movies including some film noir from the past mm -hmm. uh they just really really dressed it up for this movie and it's interesting that they brought in bradbury because he doesn't do a lot of robot stuff no no well i mean it's just the bradbury building in los angeles oh wait it's really called that yeah they just didn't do a no i just thought that they named it no to go wink wink no sci-fi no they just used it because it was the actual building the whole time yeah i, I did not know that that was its real name. Yeah, no, that's that's a real building in Los Angeles. Hey. <laughs> I'm sorry, dude. That's the one thing that I really just can't quite take seriously. Is uh, the... Yeah, they they don't add more than they take away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think their entire purpose. Good effort, though. I will give them yeah, that. Is to create this. Yes. This scene is to build the, oh, I build robots and stuff. This feels so like that... an antique shop. Oh, yeah. Doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, I believe they went to a whole bunch of antique shops just to give it that retro future look to it. Like, oh, yeah. it's been cobbled together by old stuff. Um, 
and combined into this new thing, which in fact is how a heterotopia would work. Oh yeah, you would have recycling and hoarding and you know and trash. The the garbage has to go somewhere. Yeah. Um especially in our especially when this was at the dawn of our concern of Reaganomics and corporate power. Oh yeah. Oh this. So do you That's the, how I wanna die. Daryl <laughs> <laughs> Although that flip though that, oh, was yeah. not, that wasn't Daryl Hannah. That wasn't even a uh, a woman. Oh yeah. Okay, so get this. They had a uh, the stunt woman because obviously Daryl Hannah can't do the flips, um, but they had a stunt woman do the flips initially. Mm-hmm. They did had her do it so many times that they actually tired her out. They got a uh, another male uh, stunt per- stunt person, dressed him up in drag. And had him do this flip right here. Well, you know what? He deserves an Oscar for that tuck job alone, man. Right? Right? Oh, I oh. love the screams and her flailing around. I, Dude, so the we, sound and the acoustics. Her rage and how she's almost a glitching machine. But as it's well all- as th- th- there's a... Oh, what? dude. Uh, the, the juxtaposition. Not juxtaposition. Uh, contrast mm-hmm. between... Um, we get to see Roy reach into a vat of liquid nitrogen. Yes. We also get to see her reach Early into... Early on in... Yeah. yeah. Into the boiling water. Yeah. In the other scene. So her, like, pure, undulterated rage here versus his, like, calm, cool, and collected, I, I think is a motif. With Inter- those yeah, that's really interesting. Like the fire and ice, to be yeah, cliche. Yeah, yeah, but... Well, see, Leon was the one who put his hand in the liquid nitrogen. Uh, Roy is the perfect balance between the two. Yeah. They both go down fighting because they don't accept it. Roy is the only one who actually accepts his death. Mm-hmm. He realizes that there's nothing he can do but try to live his life with purpose. His, his version of dignity, I, I think yeah. I was going to say, or pride. Um, I think at the very end, he, he goes against his program. Was he supposed to be a soldier unit? Yes. Like he, yeah. And so one of the last things he does with his time left on Earth... Is save someone. Is save someone's life. That's so interesting, isn't and it? And I think humans can learn from that. Uh, so much of what we do is out of fear of death. Yeah. If you accept death, maybe... You know what? That's actually... And, a... and focus on self-change and what you do with your life in its inevitable march. God, give it up to Daryl Hannah to actually go with the, uh, the tongue sticking out. but yeah you know i actually remember uh because rutger hauer wrote a lot of his own dialogue because he's just kind of that guy um which is literally the the only other time that's ever worked is apocalypse now with marlon brando oh yeah literally the only other time um but uh the whole he actually had like a big he was like kind of like really questioning ridley scott like why the hell am I going to save this guy at the end? Like, I really don't see any reason. And he's like, just don't think about it. Just go for it. Mm-hmm. And he did. And I, I forget his exact uh, um, direction, but yeah. Oh man. That... Jesus. Also, can we just say that this also feels very precursor to the matrix? Oh yeah. Like the, the, the collapsible walls. 
the 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 crazy neon now lights. Now I'm picturing like... Rucker Howard going, Mister Anderson <laughs> oh! is inevitable. Ow. I guess you see him. First. Oh, he's giving him a handicap. Oh shit. He enjoy. I think he kind of enjoys the hunt. Yeah. He's probably programmed to like it. To like his job. But he's not doing it for programming. He's doing it for revenge, I think. Yeah. He's just to toying with them. To show he cares for his other replicants, though, too. Yeah. Because that's a very empathetic thing to do is to close your eyes and her mouth. Yeah. I think at uh, one point even he's going to take off his coat and cover her. Mm -hmm. And then at the very end he learns empathy for humans. I yeah. guess. Or maybe he's just saving him despite it, There's again, it, it's, it's open to so much interpretation. Yeah. You know? Maybe he just does it for him because he wants to I don't know. Get a taste of life. Try his hand at... Or because he knows he's going to die. Mm -hmm. He just doesn't want to die alone. Oh. He doesn't want to die in the company of nobody. He wants at least somebody within his company. You know, we talk about them not being, like, empathetic, but this is one of the only, like... Moments where he true... 80s male leads who is crying on screen right now. Yeah. Ah. You you can't deny that's raw emotion like in yeah. his face right there. So it's There's the howling. <laughs> I know like many, many years before he uh passed away, Rutger Hauer always said, This is my favorite movie of mine. Oh yeah. Like this is my favorite performance and it's definitely the one that's gonna he, he's gonna be remembered for forever. Um, and as a matter of fact, if I was he, in a scene like this, I would just watch these like few minutes over and over. It's yeah, because it's kind of an actor's dream, mm -hmm. uh, especially because. Uh, and as a matter of fact, he loved this movie so much that uh, he, with his salary that he earned from this, mm -hmm. he actually bought a small yacht and christened it the Blade Runner. Oh, oh, that's fun. I think even his uh, autobiography um, that he wrote. Um, it's called All These Moments. Oh. Yeah. And I know Ridley Scott has said, uh, out of all the films he's made, and he's made quite a few, as we know, like, not not just like, uh, you know, Alien, uh, Kingdom of Heaven, and all those. Yeah. Like, he says Blade Runner is his most personal and complete film. Because... Uh, especially I, working over, like, such a long period of time, like you said, with the multiple edits. And yep. Being able to rearrange the footage and just... Well, you know what else was really driving him to do it at the time? Sit uh, a long time in the editing room and think, like... Well, the the other thing that really, really drove him, mm -hmm. uh, especially... And it also really kind of made him to go for that darker uh, tone that yeah. was very similar in Alien, just pushed even further, uh, was actually the death of his brother. that Because uh, he, he died about two years before uh he started working on this movie oh. and he incorporated a lot of his feelings into into this film god 
Well, there's our uh, obligatory Christianity <laughs> symbolism. Oh. Yeah, dude. The, when... These sets. And also give it up to, like, even have, like, water constantly running. Because water it, it ruin, can ruin a set, and, like, you have no idea. Like, a wet set, super hard to maintain. Oh, yeah. Especially when you're trying, when if you've got blood on an actor and you're trying to keep continuity up. Oh, it's such a mess. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Man, these are just two actors just wait. I, I think this is uh, like them taking out all the rage of the entire production just into this one thing. Oh, oh yeah. dude. Well, he only knows he's got like 10 seconds left of life to give fucks up for. So yeah. he's got all his excess fucks and he's giving them all simultaneously. <laughs> and he's just dude. so enraged. The wolf has lost its pack. Oh. You know? Also, I just love the... Because uh, the, a lot of the... For this cut, a lot of the extended matte paintings are all brand new. Ooh. Yeah. And I'll be damned. They look better than any other version I've seen. <laughs> a little bit of dan the, danger uh, the most dangerous game there, am I right? Oh, yeah. I, I just, I feel like I'm a, like a big animal somewhere in Australia, and some hunter is after me, and this is the last thing I see before I die. <laughs> I know, right? I don't know and what he's the just... fuck they hunt in Australia, but, yeah. Decker just has no place to run, man. Some guy in a safari hat coming after me with a bazooka. That's what I see in his eyes. Yeah. Oh, I also love that touch with his fingers. Like, he can't actually use them. He can't actually grip and... <laughs> it's a good thing Harrison Ford... You just Ford feel ha pain. It's a, it's a good thing Harrison Ford has those carpenter hands. <laughs> you can tell he's got those stubby little fingernails that, like, I've seen, like, woodworkers... Farmers and... have. I've yeah. seen a lot. I had an art teacher who had, like, that going on. Yep. Yep, I've had a couple friends who wound up being farmers. They had finger the stubbiest fingernails I've ever oh, seen yeah, in my life. Oh yeah, because you it's you keep pushing it, flattens it out. Yep, my nails are getting like that right now. So. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Seriously, a lot of these sets remind me of the what uh, are really are the precursor to the Matrix and Dark City and Donnie Darko, like all these great film noir like. Oh, neo yeah. like sci-fi noirs and i i think there's a hotel set in one of the bioshock games that i feel heavily borrows from oh it has to have yeah it has to it's wet the whole time you're running through different hotel rooms it's the fans ah mm -hmm. oh and this stunt i remember this where uh he's about to jump the building so apparently the the stunt guy was actually supposed to make that jump. Ooh. And because he was wearing such a wet, heavy raincoat, 
he knew he was not going to make it, so he grabbed onto the uh, the edge. I love just it, like this. It just you feel pain and tension. And oh, I, I like when the hero's pathetic or the hero is yeah. in a very vulnerable state. Because the only reason he wins is because, you know, he is saved by the bell. Yeah. Here. But uh, it, it's just it's so crazy because that looks super dangerous because it was dangerous. <laughs> and I also really love how they had the birds to set up the dove oh, yeah. earlier on. And actually, the Rutger Hauer, the, the jump that the stuntman couldn't make, he actually made the jump. Hey! Yeah. But that's most, again, mostly because he wasn't weighed down by a heavy costume. Yeah. He's not wearing a duster. He's wearing spandex shorts. Oh, God, those eyes. And they're not reflective in this final scene. Yeah, you would think that they would. I think it's metaphorical of him gaining his humanity. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting just now. I reject not, my programming. I'm going to do what I think. I'm going to defy my programming as my final act. Also, so I don't have to die alone. Yeah. I want somebody to hear my story. And... Yeah. Yeah. So, I mentioned uh, before we began the movie that <sighs> when I first saw this movie, and remember, it was the director's cut... Throughout the entire movie, I was like, I don't know what the hell is going on. It looks great, but I don't know what the fuck I'm watching. Yeah, I think that's about 70% of everybody's first viewing of Blade Runner. And maybe the themes start to click towards the end. Then this scene happens. That's when everything clicked. And I'm like, okay, this is a masterpiece that I'm bear witnessing to. That's poetry. And what I love is that the entire scene is completely in close-up. I remember people... When... Just keep it intimate for once instead of like... The... Yes. The focus is finally on the people and the dove. versus the set. This was the shot that I was talking about. Oh, originally was it just in like a It was just generic like, background. It was a generic stupid background. It wasn't raining. It was a clear sky. It was bogus. Wait, I was hated this it. for the workshop one? It for might have been a Every version scene. before this. Oh no. I know. That's how bad it was. I could see that as a placeholder if you're editing and you're like, we got it we got, we're gonna pick up the dub shot later, but this. That is perfection and maybe Deckard rises Deckard lives because he wanted to connect with another human for like five seconds or connect with a human for five seconds or another replicant whatever a person 
and he did with yeah. a replicant and that's where he finally discovers his human not just the humanity of the replicants but also his own oh yeah but what i but you know why i really hate the work print version why when you see the spinner rise up behind him it's in a wide shot not the close-up oh, it takes like... away so much of the moment i was mad <laughs> i was genuinely this is an mad. intrapersonal exchange yes. between these two men yes it should be entirely in close-up yeah. great line but yeah that dude comes to us all everyone Ugh. i'm thinking about that a lot right now like um but that that speech got me it always does yeah it's it's uh, when you know when it's... you die your memories will all and, and the only legacy he has is being able to say those like two sentences to Deckard. yeah and that's the only imprint of his memory yeah that's gonna even be there and deckard might not even give a fuck mm -hmm. he didn't he doesn't know this man mm -hmm. this man is a blade runner man yeah he might not care about your melodramatic speech but it's 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 all you can do to try to yep. pass on something before you die which and... he's completely accepted now he knows and that's all Rutger Hauer too. Like, I did no not know how much of this was his yeah. vision. Literally, of the character. Well, I mean, ninety percent of that speech was his. Like, he wrote like almost all of that. He even came up with the whole tears in rain. Oh my gosh. Um, because he had there was like a long soliloquy written, and it's like he looked at pretty much every other iteration of the script, and he's like. I really can't do this. Like I'll take elements and pieces, but no matter how you write this, it's bad. Especially because like, I don't think that character would give something lengthy and pretentious. Or because any way you write it, it's going to be written. And the only way you can actually perform it is if you make them as you, as you're there in the moment. Cause that's what film really is about capturing that moment. Um, and as a matter of fact, I remember even though like, cause that was one of the last things that they had shot. Uh, and it was like, you know, five in the morning, people are ready to go. But when he performed that scene, everyone just applauded. A couple people broke down in tears just That's because it was so. The one time I'd believe everybody clapped. Yeah. You know? It's, it's got, I can only imagine how Rutger Hauer must've felt throughout the rest of his life because that truly was his finest hour it's that sort of like succinct emotional speech that somebody who is for the first time expressing their emotion like but hits at something really real would say because mm -hmm. i don't think a soldier robot would give a paragraph long soliloquy no oh there it is there's the unicorn I'd still like to think that's just a coincidence. And you know what's also interesting? I would just like, yeah, I, I like it amb ambiguous. I think it's best as, is he, isn't he, and does it really matter? For me, for the longest time, again, 
I felt like the question didn't matter. It's the it, uh, or the answer didn't matter. The question's more interesting. Yeah. Um, I would say he was human because that's what mm-hmm. partially the story was about. Um, I almost. But I'm just really glad that it ended there. Do you know there's an alternate ending? No, I was. I'm gonna say my viewpoint is I. Either answer isn't as interesting as him kind of being both kind of being the sh- in the schrodinger's cat position of it shouldn't matter what you are you know yeah yeah, yeah there there is no difference so that's an even better way to look at it because that just plays to the sympathy of both sides even better yeah i like that Versus that dun dun the, that that inception kind of ooh question is I I like it a little more subtle. Yeah, I, I think it's good in the movie. I think I get very got very tired very fast of the fan debate because I don't think that that's what they're trying to do. Sometimes ambigu ambiguity is intentional. Yeah, it's, and it definitely is yeah, here. Yeah, I mean even Ridley Scott says yeah even though I do subscribe to the whole idea that Deckard is a replicant. Mm-hmm. I have, by design, made it ambiguous to make your own interpretation. Because it makes it better This movie. is just what I think. And now you can't argue it because 2049 canonizes that he's a replicant. He's a replicant. Yeah. Which I'm okay with, yeah. honestly. Because, like you said, still one of the, like, only one of many interesting questions that this and 2049 uh, raises. We might cover this sequel later. We <laughs> have really to. Like, to honestly, because... I was so I was so blown away by 2049 that uh, ah yes it's so much fun to talk about. I want to read Pale Fire just because Joy picked it up for two seconds, (laughs) (laughs) and then I'll come back and I'll continue to obnoxiously explain books to people. Right. Uh, You know, there's another. There there are more books by Philip K. Dick that seem to take place in the same universe. Yeah, Yeah. I believe it. Mm -hmm. It's he's he, he kind of in the same realm of what Azamok does. Yeah. Yeah. I read um, We Can Build You, which seemed to take place at the formation of the Rosin Company, which is Tyrell yeah. in this one. Um, but I need to see if there's any other books, because it's so far in the past that I can't quite connect the dots world-building-wise, except for there's another Pris. Oh, really? There was a real human Pris who Pris was based off of, and I don't like her. Oh, but I shit. love her. But I don't. But she's great. <laughs> I stand a queen, okay? <laughs> you were saying about another ending. Yes. Okay, yes. so this is one that I'm, again, so glad that Scott just completely threw out the window because, fuck it, it's bullshit. Oh, no. I hate it. Um, the uh, the producers felt like there needed to be a little bit more of a happy ending. Like the 80, it, because... He survived and, and no, walks the, out with the girl. Like, that's all you need. Well, the reason why they wanted a more happy ending, because the movie really is a bleak movie. Oh, yeah. Um, with really heady and cerebral kind of themes. Um, this remember, is already a happy ending twist on the book. True. This is already a happier version. Very true. But you really don't understand just what the pop culture might. Mi- oh, not, I know. I know what it is. Uh, I'm just mad I mean, about it. <laughs> no, I, I, I am too. Um, yeah, but. but like the whole mindset of night because 1982 was Blade Runner. Yes. That was also E.T. Poltergeist. Um, uh, Return of the Jedi was just over the horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, Rambo, like. All these um, like really like positive, fun, action, poppy 
popcorn movies were out at the time. Yeah. And they were like, oh, this is really depressing. <laughs> but I think there's a gentle hope at the end. True. It's just that they were looking like, at it. And, well, they were just looking at a lot of the dailies and just being like, this is really depressing. Yeah. Can we like get a, like, a little bit more of like something hopeful? So what they had was um, Rachel and Deckard driving away through a countryside to live to live off of, with a new life you don't see the expression on my face everywhere do they sing somewhere it's green is that what that no <laughs> yeah i i think that the ending is the least depressing part of this movie oh i agree it's not my goat died my wife left me the replicant doesn't like me i killed six people and i lost my humanity i'm just gonna cry which is the end of the book i think what they the <laughs> at least like what the producers were thinking were like Hey, can we have like a one scene where they're driving, where we actually see them driving away mm-hmm. up Phil K. Dick? Oh. But um, they actually have them driving away, and we want to see them in the for in like the for through a country road or like a forest road and a neighborhood road, uh, or uh, just like driving where trees are passing by, just so we say we can see trees and we have the confidence and or the contrast of the. The dark city that we've seen. I hate happy endings post on to, posted on to like oh, dark no, they're, stories. They're I awful. love happy endings in a cheesy movie. Give me a rom-com. Give me a happy ending. I'm like, yay. But, but with this, that no. That was already the happiest part of the movie is. Yeah. Tom Tom, I love you. Let's go out. Maybe I'm a replicant. Whatever. We're all good. The, the battle is over. Yeah. The, the job you got dragged in to do that you didn't want to do, it's over. It's safe. And you got the girl. And life's still shitty, but now there's a quiet hope that yeah. you can live in peace. But no, they Which you did, won't they insisted on the doing. They totally insisted on doing that. Good, but that uh, didn't make it in. Well, he, <laughs> well here's like the it. well here's an even weirder part. Mm-hmm. When they were cut to the wide shot of them driving through the mountainous like countryside, they actually used uh, unused footage of the opening of The Shining. No. Yeah, That's I know. Creepy. Yeah, I know. Like, That's well, creepy. because Stanley Kubrick is such a perfectionist and just like has mountains and mountains and mountains of unused footage, like he had roughly two and a half weeks worth of just mountain helicopter footage for the opening. Oh yeah, that's I've a got lot. A list of horror movies that open with homages to that. Yeah. Um, what was it? Um. The Silenced, which I was talking about, yes. the Korean film that I make all my friends watch. Um, I think it was Midsummer does that, but then they turn the camera all the way around so it's driving on the top of the screen right. by the end of the shot. Um, there's a lot of movies that open with that well, the- exact cinematography of the car driving, and I'm like, shining. <laughs> that I, can, I could pick out that footage from anywhere. Well, I mean, they actually shining used, cars was my game. They still they used like the actual footage, like because yeah. they actually even called up Stanley Kubrick, like himself. Can we have your which B is, roll? Like, which, no, which is super rare because he's so private. Yeah. Um, and they're like, "Can we use some of your disused stuff?" And he is like, "Absolutely," so long as it didn't appear in the final cut of The Shining, which because there were already mountains of unused stuff. They were totally happy to oblige. Oh, yeah. So it's kind of cool that they actually got like a little oh, no, bit of it's a... it's cool they got permission. But I also think if their intention was a happy ending, that yeah, shot no. is inherently uncanny. Yeah, it's... it's... You and can plus... say objectively it's a car through trees that's happy. And maybe it would have made me like it a little more if, okay, you go into nature and it's still 
iffy. And pre- well, it's also well, there's still a nature out there because as we saw, the world of Blade Runner twenty forty nine or twenty nineteen really bleak and dark like very industrial and you're like do trees even exist anymore? yeah but if you go to like modern day china you know that would be a city and then you drive two hours out to the countryside mm-hmm. and completely different exactly although that's not the case when 2049 no shows up. you can a- absolutely tell for sure like oh no the world has gone to shit yeah you can <laughs> tell they like even agriculture has changed i love like oh protein farms like people can't even get yeah I bought some some cricket protein powder the other oh, you day did? at the yeah, it's coming in the mail. What? So I I might do you want a, a cookie dough cricket protein bar? Possibly. I might bring one over. I might try it just <laughs> just to say I did. Just I'm getting prepared for our future, you know. Because well, I mean, one, that's the other thing that I really loved about 2049 is like because as you know, this movie kind of played on the whole like anxiety of like what the 80s really started to get anxious about which was big corporation business and um you know uh low levels of uh even though we have high technology there's still extreme poverty and drug reuse and all that sort of thing yeah where you i love like the ideas of natural decay and isolation in 2049 well in 2049 they also bring up the whole global warming thing now oh yeah because if you remember that's what the, I brought up with natural decay and whatever. Yeah, yeah, but the whole opening where it looks like it's snow, oh, there's gray snow. Oh, it's yeah. super bleak it's out. It's all the scenes from this movie, but instead of the color and the light and the fire, they've been abandoned and dark. I, th- I think you do see the pyramid building, and it's just it's super color. small now yeah. by comparison to the Wallace Corporation. Mm-hmm. Or if you remember, like, Tyrell Corp's, like, with them flaunting like the owls and the animals and stuff yeah. i think they mentioned the horse yes is worth more than like a gazillion pounds of gold yeah and wallace does his whole room in this japanese wood panel zen style mm-hmm. yeah so now it's even trees are yeah fucking gone too it's trees not- are gone too because mm-hmm. i actually rem- well i do remember most viv- what really like just hit me super hard was that uh, the opening sequence where Kay goes back to the LAPD to get his test going, it's snow. It's snowing with gray. Uh, the skies are dark. the The sky is perpetually gray or completely dark out. Mm-hmm. Snow is falling. Gray snow, and when it shows the date, it is June thirtieth, twenty forty nine. Oh fuck! I didn't even put those two together. I well, it's only because I recently rewatched yeah. 2049, and I'm like, oh my god, it's in June. Yeah, because we you were paying attention to the dates for this one. Yes. And I guess yeah, no, the ending of 2049 is him lying down in the snow. Yes. So I guess you get rain and snow as thematic elements of the two films. Yes. As well, we need to do a future podcast on on 2049 before we exhaust all the material. Absolutely, because <laughs> yeah. it's these are such heady movies. Oh yeah. And. We're going to keep talking about them for a very long time, long after 2019 has passed, because even though this is the year, there's still so much more to explore from it and to learn from it, I think, not just from the themes and the ideas, but also even just from the filmmaking itself. Oh, yeah. You know, and I think it's it stays open and and stays relevant because I don't think it answers any of the questions that it poses. Yeah. But just. Make sure that you're thinking about them. Ninety-nine. Best thing to do. Ninety-five percent of the time in science fiction, questions are 
far more interesting than answers. Oh, yeah. Because you never really know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that has been a fun episode. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to lie, oh, you guys. I, so I'm, I'm glad to revisit this. Yes. It's been a while since I've seen the movie. It really has yeah. been. Um, so it, this is definitely one I'm going to have to get, pop in every once in a while. I need to sit you down and... Uh, see some of the other cu- other cuts yes yeah i i haven't seen any of them. even though you might i throw, might hate them you're probably gonna throw shit honestly <laughs> if there's a voiceover i will throw shit actually I you will, know what I no ptsd from dune tim i can't do voiceover <laughs> no actually actually you're probably gonna laugh throughout the entire thing instead of throw shit yeah just because harrison like ford's Karen. Harrison Ford sounds so disinterested throughout the entire movie. Harrison it's hilarious. Harrison phoning it in. I like. Well, I I think I said this earlier. Harrison I love watching him not give a fuck during interviews. Oh my gosh! You, you, just He's like just somebody asked me about my pilot's license. I hate Star Wars. Please. It's like, can't we talk about how cool this pl- this new plane is? So who shot first? Please, please kill me like uh, he's like who shot first i did bam you know just... what i wanted to imagine so you know who hates interviews about his movie more than harrison ford ever will george lucas robert pattinson hates getting interviewed about his role in twilight he hates it so much oh he ha- boy he wanted some money he's not a, a well-known actor he wanted like maybe a good cr- cash grab and to get well-known in the u.s and he hates being edward and I want him to grow old and grumpy and surpass Harrison Ford <laughs> as the oldest, grumpiest actor who hates his job. Actually, can we see Robert Pattinson in a Blade Runner movie? Like, a split... Like I a would sp- watch... There was a movie he was in that had, like, heavy neon themes that I need to find. I need to find. Because I a- would love to see him take on a replicant role. Yeah. Or, um, or just even, like, a... Bl- Oh man, if Robert Pattinson instead of Ryan Gosling, that would have been interesting, honestly. Cause... Oh, Good Time. That was the movie that I saw him in. And it's got, I guess, this color palette to it. Like, it, like yeah, a. Yeah, very neon y. Oh, okay. It's about a guy who, um, he like commits petty crimes and his brother, who's mentally disabled, gets uh, taken in by the cops. And in order to make, like, bail money, he has to, like, pull one last heist because his brother isn't, like, doesn't have the capability to, like, survive in prison. Yeah, it looks like uh, one of those, um, it's really funny how, like. But it's got that that neon color palette, too. Well, yeah, because one thing that I've actually noticed, especially with films, like, by uh, Nicholas Winding Refn, um, Mm -hmm. is that uh, uh, present-day film noir uh, often replaces the stark black and white with neon and yeah. colors. Cause, um, if we're talking about a city at night, like a heavily populated city at night. That's Well, even just like uh, the color palettes of that. Because yeah. I often see like, you know, these action adventure, thriller, or even just sh- straight thriller films. Often, like if you were to play put these in black and white, they would look straight up like film noir. But because those were black and white and now we're dealing with color, they throw a bunch of color with the neon. And I think that's very present in, you know, neo-noir films like uh, uh, Dark City. Detective Bl- Pikachu. Yeah. Uh, that's, 
that be works. On some people. No, it worked. No, yeah. that that totally qualifies. <laughs> Believe it. Honestly, it totally does. I, or um, or, but also like Drive is another yeah, one absolutely. where it just pl- really pumps up and plays with the the color of light, light and color. Well, if, even if you think about when color wasn't a thing in movie, the high contrast of was the style. Yeah, and it's still heavily influencing light light is a heavy influence on it yes and i honestly believe that blade runner is the whole reason why um these film these neo film noirs uh of the present have such like a a crazy uh color light palette yeah i i agree absolutely yeah it kind of stuck that aesthetic for you know it's it's still going future on. future funk yeah like if you see like one of those indie action thriller films 90 percent of the time you'll see like colored lights like uh another great use is uh the uh, the use of uh tail lights as red lights to oh yeah because uh, that that's worked very well in uh the beginning of goodfellas mm-hmm. with the you know where they stab the guy and uh, with akira the death. flashback to myself. A- akira is another really great one mm-hmm. um but uh and even Ghost in the Shell. Oh yeah. Like and not the, the well I mean yeah you could argue the 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 2017 remake. I mean a lot of the uh, the the city is obviously played on this instead of The remake was almost lifting directly from the anime to to give it a, a new audience more yeah. than it was innovating anything in my yeah. mind. That should be another one, honestly, in the future. Oh. Both, both the anime and the live action. We'll remake. start with the anime. Well, yeah, because. Yeah. Well, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. well, it's. Because <laughs> I want to watch the it's, anime. It's so much better, for you guys. <laughs> it's so much better. Like the, the new one is just so frustrating to watch. Oh man. It's because you're like. I, I appreciate like the intention of adaptations to bring things to new audiences Mm -hmm. there are people who won't read comic books there were there were people will be people who wouldn't know what akira was if it wasn't a movie because nobody reads manga yeah you know vice versa you know some people just in the west we just don't watch cartoons so i appreciate maybe getting it back into the spotlight yeah via live action films but there's no comparison. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't the think original. it deserves its own episode, but I'd, I'd watch it did, again. Did again. you hear who's making the uh, the live action version of Akira? Who? Taiko Watiti. Okay. You know what? You know what? You get a chance, sir. <laughs> I like you. I do. I do. I, I still, like you. I still need to see Jojo Rabbit, which I, I do too. It's not out where we are. No, yet. It, it. No, it is. Like around I, here. Yeah, a friend of ours uh, actually went to go see oh, it. Nice. So. I'm probably going to go check it out this weekend. Because I remember it wasn't out on its official release date around here. Yeah. I, I guess I'll go see it this weekend then. No. Because, yeah, because honestly, because uh, I've been Googling to... it every 10 days or so. For sure, yeah, for sure dude. Because <laughs> Taika Waititi is current. Like, it's being delayed a lot. Um, he's great. It's being delayed a lot because he's got his hands in, like, a whole bunch of other projects. But honestly, I'm really interested just because he's so well known for his comedy. Like, I don't know how that's going to translate to the kind of bleak, like, childlike wonder of Akira. Yeah, he can tell dark stories within his comedy, but I've never... It's a different tone. I'll be interested to see how he does it. Yeah. All right. So, (laughs) this has been a very wonderful, extensive episode of uh, ComTrack. I really hope you guys have uh, um, uh, enjoyed it. And next week, or next month, this December... We are dropping some heavy, 
heavy bombs your way. We are going to be taking on the extended foot cuts of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm man. excited. <laughs> I'm super excited, you guys. This is going to be big. But until then, we'll be back in December. So I've been Tim. I've been Hannah. And this has been Comtrack, where you'll never have to watch a movie alone again. Peace. Peace.